This is Shaka Ward Speak. Welcome to Shaka Ward Speak. It's Ryan and Gareth. Good hey, morning, Ryan. Gareth. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Good, good. It's raining outside, so if you hear any thunder or lightning on this podcast, those are not special effects uh, from our uh, special effects team, because there is none. No, uh, that's they, just actually... They just didn't show up today. Yeah, they didn't show up today. But the uh, but the rain did, so um, you just never know. Um, uh, we're picking up with our third and I believe final part to our... Dare we say final part? Dare we say... I'm going to go Michael Jordan and say I'm 99% sure that <laughs> this is the third part. Man, that, that's awesome. That means there's always a chance for a comeback. That's right. Uh, to our anxiety, you know, work-life integration um, and satellite brain debris <laughs> uh, yeah. episodes uh, that we've been trying to kind of put together, um, you know, a three-part series at a minimum. So, so we're looking at today is the this is the third the third part, and um, we're hoping we can kind of bring it to some practical place. So we want to. I think part of the big goal is to kind of survey the landscape you know, just from even a personal standpoint and from our experiences uh, with friends and uh, other artists and makers, and then um, move from general to specific. So get to a place where we move from theory to practice. Like what is, you know, what does it look like to put some, uh, some things in place to kind of help you assess yourself and then, and then move into the work integration, you know, how, what does it look like to integrate? And, uh, so hopefully we can get through that. We'll see, we'll see, we'll see how yeah. this goes today. I mean, it's no small conversation. I mean, there's no. a lot that goes into that. Um, and like we've said the last couple episodes on this, um, you know, it, it takes a little while to actually get to a point where you can start to say, maybe here are some pathways forward. Um, and I think some of that is because what we don't want to do is we don't want to necessarily just say, Hey, here's 20 things, go try them. Maybe one of them will work. And instead, I think we'd both rather put in, some of the work on the front end, having the conversation, figuring out the definitions, really understanding the landscape, and then we could move more pointedly in productive directions. Yeah, I mean, if you think of it this, I, I mean, I think when you say that, I envision a buffet, and sometimes everyone is pressured to present a buffet. And because there already is a buffet, I don't feel pressure that we have to present it. We're just, an, think of us as an item on the buffet. Think of what we're saying as an option. And so if you're looking for a multifaceted set of options, like we're aware of that and it's just too, too wide, uh, to encompass. So it's, you know, we figure we'll go with, I think some of the things that, um, have rung true for us and, and, and I think people in our community and, and, you know, understand it as a possible way, you know, as opposed to the way or, um, the only way, you know. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, circumstances are going to be different. Sure. Uh, what you're doing is different. I mean, the entire field of, of art and design is a wide variety of people, uh, modes of practice, um, everything. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this a lot. Like, you know, there's, just, there's people that uh, some of what we've talked about just won't land for them because it's just, they're in a great spot and they're really excited about what they're doing. They're single-mindedly focused on it. And for them in, in the flow of their life, it's not an issue right now. And so, um, which is awesome. I mean, I have friends like that and uh, students and mm -hmm. we've got to work with artists in charcoal art space that are killing it, you know, and, and uh, it's just makes sense to them and, and they're rolling, you know? Uh, but the other thing, so even sometimes I feel like uh, when someone 
looks at the relevance of something. Uh, sometimes we look at the relevance of an idea or a set of ideas uh, in reference to ourselves. And we fail to remember that if you're like an, an artist or a designer or a maker, a craft maker or what have you, if it's not relevant to you, there's a good chance it's relevant to folks around you. If 70 or 80% of people are struggling with this, then you're meeting people that are struggling with it. And that's how it's relevant to you is, is you may be someone who's in a position to help somebody, um, uh, you know, think afresh on the state of their affairs, or at a minimum, it gives you an empathetic category for why someone may be difficult in a season. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And also, I think it, it's also good to point out that this is something that is not, um, I mean, this is a, this is a human condition. I mean, anxiety is not something that anybody is free from at some point. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if that's the case, that means that even if this is kind of, uh, so to speak, falling on, on deaf ears now, it mm -hmm. doesn't mean that sometime in the next five, 10 years, you're not going through that same sort of stuff. Right. Right. Um, I know that that's been the case in my life, that there have been points where like anxiety has been super low with the work I do. I mean, mm -hmm. luckily, um, you know, the last couple of years, the anxiety with client work has been pushed off a lot. Um, right. but two, three years before that, it felt like everything was full of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think it's one of those things that this is a conversation that it always has relevance, even if it's not to a hundred percent of the people, because still everybody is going to deal with anxiety at some sure. point in their yeah, career. Yeah. Um, so where we've gone so far is we've talked a lot about anxiety and kind of how different things affect us. Um, You're talking about like balancing. Yeah. You know, trying to balance becomes performative and integration has time and space included in it. We've talked, you know, we've hit at some of the implications of that. Yeah. So we've, you know, I think we've done a really good job kind of hitting at this stuff that kind of comes to us in some ways. Maybe we're, we're kind of passive receivers of things that create more anxiety in us. Um, or, you know, just kind of if we want to talk about even like just the the field of art and design and the, you know, the unsure nature of if somebody's going to like or buy or whatever my work. Um, but I think today we kind of want to start off switching that a bit mm -hmm. and not necessarily talking about how the ways in which anxiety kind of affects us, but the ways that we might actually affect anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, so. And so we're going to move today from, from what Gareth said, we're going to, we're going to get at that. And then that's going to take us into, I think some of the habits that we're forming yeah. that contribute in a way that'll make sense. And then that'll frame up. Okay. So how do we integrate this? How do we, how do we understand kind of the predicaments we're in and then how do we integrate our lives in such a way that maybe, you know, we work more effectively with more peace or more, um, and we'll, we'll try to get, I mean, I can at least share, uh, practical ways that that's happening for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, Gareth can share some practical ways that's, that's working out for him and, and where we're still also still dealing with it. I've had a pretty stressful week this week. And so the irony of that is I had some anxious days. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we're but right also in the this is coming it. from, you know, like between us, like, you know, 15, 20 years of, of, of learning ways where anxiety can kind of help. And again, in no way are we saying these are like universal solutions or anything mm -hmm. like that, but we are saying that, uh, at least, uh, a hundred percent of the people, uh, that whose lives have been lived by me, this has been true for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so at least in that way, um, some of this experience, like it actually is coming from a real place. So I guess let's just uh, start start into it. Uh, what do we even mean when we start talking about like how we actually affect anxiety? What do we? I mean, like how can we start to kind of put that in the, like yeah. simple terms? Yeah. Um, 
Well, we've talked about this in certain ways, like I've alluded to this and, you know, I think it always kind of bounces around in discussions with artists. Um, and so this, some of this will be redundant, um, in order to get to the point, I guess. So bear, bear with the redundancies or sometimes redundancies are important because, uh, some things have to be driven home in multiple conversations to really punctuate an idea that can, can stay around for a while and, and impact and have a, you know, have a, have a, a solid say in someone's mind, you know, it takes time to keep, you know, I have to hear things several times sometimes, you know, to, to really grasp what, what the meaning is. You kind of chew on it, you yeah, meditate on it, yeah. you know, so just, just putting that out there. And so, um, we have desire and there's what we think we'll get as a result of obtaining whatever it is we want, you know, whatever we're desiring, mm-hmm. you know, if I want a good meal, um, I'm hoping it tastes good and I'm hoping it satisfies my, my hunger and, you know, it fulfills a myriad of, of responsibilities. It's actually nourishing. It tastes really good or, and if it's like, um, not super nourishing for me, then I'm going to redistribute some expectation for what it needs to carry to compensate for its lack of nourishing. So it better have better taste. Like it better be really fried or, you know, um, and so if I'm willing to throw something out, I want to see that redistributed somewhere else at a higher level. And so like, that's why I don't eat at like, you know, seven 11 or something like that, because Mm. most, you know, like there, there's food in there. And if I had to, I guess I would, but, um, there's things that are bad for you, for you and they taste bad and there's no other exceeding benefit. You're just kind of like done. But otherwise we have this ratio of uh, possibilities that are, that our desires are set against in any kind of situation, whether it be a person, you know, somebody may date somebody because they're extremely attracted to them, you know, almost like just at a, like a purely sexual way. Mm -hmm. And they'll completely exclude every other aspect of that person uh, that they don't prefer, don't like. And it's like, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll dehumanize them and they'll objectify them. They'll do all these things and they'll weigh that against how physically attractive they find that person. And and people do that, you know, Um, you know, or, or the other way that, you know, you could say like, there'll be people that don't find someone physically attractive, but their uh, other attributes are so, um, you know, desirable or attractive that they're compelled to put aside that, that physical component. Um, and then sometimes because of that, people find they're, they're just totally attracted to the person. I mean, I'm just using like relevant examples, I guess that anybody can relate to, or has, has seen somebody else act in in a way. And, and we all know like some, how terrible it is when someone is reduced to like a body part, you know what I mean? Like, um, or when they're fragmented down to one thing, it's like, I just love you for your mind. And you're like, <laughs> like, well, what about, every, <laughs> yeah. what about everything else? You know, like you have great eyes and that's what I love about you. And you're like, man, but like, I got a personality. Yeah. Too. Like I, it, and, and Hey, I'm going to age and change. Like what if my eyes don't work anymore? Are you still going to love me for those? Like, um, and so I guess what I'm trying to lay out is, is there's these holistic options or these total options and, and people, you know, for better or worse, sometimes we, we make decisions based on our desires towards things. And, um, 
you know, we're bartering all the time or bargaining, you know, we're weighing the costs. So what I think happens sometimes when it comes to say, like, let's just think in terms of the arts is, um, I often say this, I meet a lot of people that want the benefits of being an artist or a designer, the benefits. And a lot of times those are associated with social status, the perception that you're a free thinker, uh, the perception that you live outside of normative boundaries, that you're eccentric, that you're interesting, that you're um, immune to certain social expectations. In fact, you may be the one who's the wise sage who knows more than everybody else in some kind of shamanistic way, some kind of over-spiritualized way. Um, you, you, uh, you want those benefits. You believe that, um, the work of being an artist or designer is going to enable you to obtain to those perceptual benefits. And what that's going to get you is, um, people that are going to, um, not be able to judge you. They're not going to be able to critique you. Um, and only the ones that can get close to you, um, they're only going to just accept you and love you because somehow you've weeded out the ones that won't. And even if someone does try to critique you, well, they, they're, they're in the box. I'm out of the box. You see, so like there's some kind of ego tied to tied to this aspiration. And I think that comes through like the stereotypes that have been passed down about artists and designers and creative types. And, you know, it's like, uh, how many memes on Facebook talk about, well, I'm a, in no offense if this is you, cause I'm definitely a messy person. My wife can test it. Laura can testify to this. Like I have to work on it all the time, but how many people go like, well, uh, if you're highly creative if, if you curse like a sailor and you're super messy and then you're like, yes. <laughs> but I've also met people that do those things that are not highly exactly. Creative. Yeah. So, so it's like, it's like, is that really, you know, part and parcel to being an artist or, is being an artist really just giving you license to go like, I don't, sometimes I don't know what the heck I'm doing and I don't want anybody to tell me. And I want people to think I'm kind of eccentric and cool or, or valuable, you know? Yeah. Um, well, let me even like, and cause I'm thinking through this and as you're talking, I'm thinking about um, like 18 to 25 year old me. Mm -hmm. um, so when all these ideas are kind of forming and coming together and you know, pathways are being forged and whatnot, um, Neuro pathways. <laughs> so let me, uh, and maybe this, I don't know, maybe this is a pushback, but um, because what, what, what's interesting, what you're saying is that I completely understand because I did the same thing, but I will say that between 18 and 25, I had no idea that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So there were things that were becoming sort of, uh, I don't know, hangups mm -hmm. or I was becoming disgruntled or building huge amounts of anxiety over, but I wasn't actually realizing what their cause was mm -hmm. um, because I, wa I wanted that kind of social capital. I wanted to be seen a certain way. I wanted the kind of intangibles mm -hmm. that came because of the work, but I wasn't, wasn't really doing the work. Right. I couldn't it, flesh that out. Yeah. And, so and that's it, super tough. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's real. I mean, I think that's, you know, I also say that, you know, it's like the kid who's like in 17 and reading Nietzsche in high school or 16. Yeah. There's the kid who's reading Nietzsche and they're really like that teenage angst thing is real. And they, mm -hmm. there's like, you know, this kind of, how do you say it? You know, there's a proportion amount of people in, in that are 16 that are probably not reading Frederick Nietzsche. Right. <laughs> that's, that's fair. So then when you are the kid that does, 
you really are outside. And if you heaven forbid, you really are the kid that does because you really want to know something and you're reading because you're, you're curious, you're kind of eccentric. And so there's a truth to some of this stuff. And, and so then you have the eccentric kid who really is reading that and they're eccentric just by, by proxy to everyone else who's not reading. They just appear that way. Right. But then there's the other kid who's like, man, you know, Sarah's reading Nietzsche and I want to be like Sarah. Now they're not reading. They don't want to read Nietzsche. They want to be like Sarah. You see the difference? Yeah. yeah. So the two can hang out together, look very similar, but actually be very different. And I want to be careful in this because there are people that actually really are eccentric and it's because their proclivities, their interests, their intellect veers them into spaces that are not indicative of, of larger percentages of people. And they really truly are creative. Um, the question is how do we, uh, get a sense of ourselves. Right. And so, um, this goes back to your question and back to the lead up. So if our desire is, um, to obtain to these, uh, values, then we may not actually really be a designer or an artist per se, because our desire is not to create, um, to step into that because there's things we're trying to bring to bear, um, stories we're trying to tell, uh, uh, thoughts we're trying to, uh, um, put forward into a larger dialogue, uh, creative problem solving that actually benefits a client or right. Um, and so I think what happens is the desire is not there. And so something has to, um, at a sensory level compensate for the lack of desire. And so what happens is we, we end up becoming like, um, you know, it's probably going to go in two roads. There's procrastination and there's therapy. Mm, so okay. we end up procrastinating and what is procrastination? Well, it's the fear of losing the thing you want to obtain. If you want social status at, at through the means of being an artist, let's say, uh, let's say it, maybe for the sake of conversation, let's just pretend we're talking about musicians, you know, just cause it's, it's relatable and easy. And I have I've had friends like this. Um, they want the benefits of being a rock star, but they don't know how to play music. So they act like one. They quote unquote look like one and they're always false starting bands and you know, they never actually really start one and they actually can't play a song, but they own a guitar and they strum it every now and then. And the, the reason why is the desire for really being a musician is so faint compared to the desire to be seen for the benefits that, um, in the context of art, time has to pass with a deadline a grade, a critique, a gallery exhibition. And then what happens is the pressure mounts inside because what the, it's, it, which is really motivated by fear. What it means is I don't desire to make work. I just desire out of fear to not be perceived as less than what I'm trying to get socially. And so procrastination goes, 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 uh, feelings well up. And then you finally get the work done. And then it's like adrenaline, you get the work done and then it's like a release. So it creates this kind of tension release and you live to fight another day <laughs> as far as like, um, getting that award or getting that recognition. And, um, all the while you're frustrated, bitter, you hate what you're doing or you're apathetic to it. And, uh, there's no enduring desire. It doesn't, you're not working when there's not a deadline. You're not working just cause, cause like I love to read. And so you don't have to tell me to read. I'm going to read you know, um, uh, deadlines can help with projects, but mo for the most part, I like to read. Um, 
but I see this a lot with students, hundred percent. And, um, but also I think it's important that people discover this, like they have to find out because what can happen is once you know, you're wired this way, then you get to make the choice. Well, maybe I really need to reassess everything and then get a really healthy desire for, for being an artist, you know? Um, so to your point about the 18 to 25 year old range, it doesn't mean that you're not, it's just that your wires are crossed. It's cart before the horse. Yeah, definitely. And, and a lot of what you're saying, um, you know, after, after 25, I think a lot of this stuff started to change in some ways. Um, it was very, I was much more interested in making, um, making more work. Um, but also like what you're talking about with deadlines and things like that's very real. And a lot of times I think we might dismiss that and say, well, oh, that, that sounds like a very like uh, kind of commercial sort of thing, this idea of deadlines. But I like the way that you play this out as, you know, grades, that's one of them. So if you're a student, you know, grades are definitely a form of a deadline. Um, having the actual exhibition and making sure your work is prepared and ready for the curator to do their thing, it's another deadline. So they're all there in different ways. And I'd say the spaces where my work grew the most or where I grew the most as a designer happened in spaces where my proclivity towards procrastination was reduced. Um, because... I mean, procrastination is so easy to do. I mean, um, I like to think back, like, you know, you had, you have these stories of uh, whether they're 100% true or not, of like, you know, Abraham Lincoln, like reading by candlelight in mm -hmm. his log cabin and like the three books that they owned or something, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think back to like, what did procrastination look like in a, in a society where you were farming your own food and making yeah. your own clothes and things like that, you know, like it, it might've actually looked like some work to procrastinate. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, you know, uh, the, all the advancements and technology and whatnot are fantastic in our society, but they do have their drawbacks. And sure. one of them is that sometimes the biggest thing during my day that fills the most time is just procrastination. Mm -hmm. So even if I have a desire to do this project or finish this piece or do this work or start this thing, I've got a lot of spaces where I can procrastinate mm -hmm. and it becomes uh, really, I mean, extremely caustic because mm -hmm. we, we think of it in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there are things that really do fill our time. Um, I had a friend post something on, on Instagram, I think, and they were talking about um, time management, procrastination, same sort of thing. And, and it was something like, you know, you, you don't have, uh, you don't have an hour to go to the gym but you've got two hours to watch Netflix, you know, and it's getting That's, this thing of yeah, like priorities, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, of yeah, like, it, gets, it starts to allude to priorities and your priorities won't change until, and your priorities won't change unless, because it really, it goes back to desire. Like what are your chief desires? What are your really, yeah. really, like what are your most essential um, aspirations to the best of your discernible ability? Like we talked about the, uh, the idea of the uh, consciousness, subconsciousness, and like this idea of this pre-conscious state. That is, um, I mean, <laughs> I, I haven't been thinking about this. Maybe this is like a, a bit of a rabbit trail, but I love the idea that we tell people to search within and it's like, uh, it's an insane proposition because you can't get too far into it. What it turns into is a, a weird mental state of apparent, you know, yeah. You know, I want to be careful, but sometimes when someone comes back and says they, they've been enlightened in a way and they've uh, emptied themselves, 
Glenn what? What do you, what do you how does that apply to the problem? What they're looking for is to calm the storm inside. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like yeah, definitely. And so I mean, I'm just saying I've wrestled with this because I'm like, okay, but then what, what happens when the storm comes again? And and uh, we still have to do do life in this world. And so um, it seems to me that nothing. Yeah, I'm going to make some dangerous statements. Like I don't think anything is neutral. So I think qualitatively there's things that we are, are better to pursue than other things. We agree with this. Like we, you know, we agree like um, it's better to pursue um, healthier eating than, than not healthier eating. You know, like, I mean, we do yeah. this all the time. You know, we, everybody's got their ethics and their standards and it's very, they're very different. But in general, like we think living is a good thing in general. You know what I mean? Um, quality of life matters. Like we, we agree to this stuff. We're trying to figure it out and it's a mess. We got our ideas, but one thing I think is like there's there's some um, internal state that has to be addressed. Like, why do we need value anyways? You know, like why do we need to be seen as important? Those are questions I got. Like, why does everybody struggle with that approval? You know, um, why is fear so powerful in terms of motivating us? And uh, um, I don't know. I mean, these are just questions that I that I think are worth really sitting on and going like, yeah, why, why is it, why is it that so many people procrastinate? One of my favorite stories is, um, and I hope he's not listening today because it's my uncle. Um, I won't say which one, but they know. Um, and maybe I already told this story. So stop me if I did. Go ahead. Okay. So, uh, my uncle had a lot of different struggles and I won't say too much because he could be listening, but he, (laughs) He had this book on how to how to not procrastinate, and uh, he had been reading that book for like seven years, and hadn't finished it. Yeah, and was and was convinced once he finished it that he would stop procrastinating, <laughs> which is why I don't think he ever finished the book. Yeah, because then he'd have to stop. <laughs> like he was convinced that somehow it was going to be the key to everything. And they came to our house in California one time for Thanksgiving, and and he lost it, and so he was ticked because he was convinced I stole it from him. So I could figure out how to not procrastinate. And we went through this whole thing, you know, uh, for a while. And then he found it in his house somewhere. And uh, I think I saw him and jokingly asked him, did you ever finish that book? And he, he never did. And he's still procrastinating. You know, is this. <laughs> no, that's, that's fair. I mean, you can, you can walk into my office right now uh-huh. and you can see a totem to my procrastination. Mm-hmm. And I'm keeping it that way because of what it means now, kind of feeling like I'm further down that road than I was before. But I was gonna make uh, make myself a sign, and I did this like uh, hand lettering sign painter stuff, and it was gonna say today, mm-hmm. um, and it was just gonna be a visual reminder of like just getting down to the tasks of the day, and doing the work, um, which is funny because I had other things I needed to be doing instead of making the sign in the first place. So it in itself was an act of procrastination. Mm-hmm. But to this day, it is not finished. Right, like it still is halfway painted. Right. Um, but I like what it's saying now better because it's actually showing me like if you're not actually engaged with some of that work for today, like then you are just procrastinating and this is what it looks like. And so for me, what that means is, you know, um, unfinished client work, uh, clients that don't come back for a second project, you know, those sort of things. And so it, it acts as that reminder for me kind of in the same way, but it, it, it still is one of those things where it's like, you don't get away from procrastination. You mm-hmm. might get further from it's like absolute grip on you. Mm-hmm. But until the day I die, 
I'm going to be procrastinating about things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, and I think that gets to like priorities, but I, and I do, I, you know, I want to, I do think this is like so big to sit on as much as we can a little bit, because I think this is like at, at the heart of a lot of anxiety is, is we've been given, um, we are, uh, perpetually capitulating options for ways to be seen as valuable. And people will take that. We, we will take the path of least resistance. A lot of times it takes real fortitude to, um, you, know, you, you look at civil rights, you look at Dr. King, you know, um, he could have procrastinated. There's some kind of uh, uh, determination in him to not procrastinate at a certain point in, in March or, you know, you think about, um, I, y- there's probably some kind of intertention of like doing something that you know is imperative that you must do, but also equally feeling like, Oh, I'm not up for this today, but gosh, I got to do it. And so one of the things I think that is entailed in that is, is the sense of otherness like that, that it entails uh, other people that, that there's a, a motivation beyond our mere self-expression. And the reason why I say that is um, we, I, all of us can move through a lot of ideas and half starts. And what happens is um, we're at that level where we like the idea, we execute it, and then we stop. It's unfinished because we, we've over-assumed its outcome before we ever made it. And the desire wasn't that strong for it to live for anybody else didn't really mean much to anybody else. So we didn't bring it to bear, bring it all the way into full physical existence, if you will, or sonic existence or whatever. Um, and so they live in a, in a half state, um, which I honestly think a lot of times says that the desire wasn't uh, all the way for that to be brought to bear for other people. And I think the compensation for that uh, goes like this. Well, it's self-expression. I just do to express myself, which is, now check this out. That is... I think a chorus sung by people who are looking for social capital and not to be an artist. So they've created a definition to compensate for why the work is anemic or are non-existent or ineffective. And what's interesting is if you strip that away and you look at the makers that are making that actually have an impact on society, they always have a more thoughtful answer for why they make. They never say it's merely self-expression. Right. It's fascinating. And so, um, but who sometimes who speaks the loudest is the multitude of voices that are not doing things um, and, uh, and are discontent. They're dissatisfied. They're frustrated. They're anxious. And they're trying to figure out a quick solution. How do I balance everything? How do I balance this? I'm not saying this is everybody, by the way. I'm saying this strongly. And so sometimes the way we think we hear things is like, um, if I said, oh, you know, that apple tastes terrible or I don't like apples, you know, the, the way a person hears it is like, well, I like apples. So you're saying I'm a bad person or you don't like me or, you know, we have these funky logic or oh, are you saying you don't like fruit? And it's like, no, I just don't like that apple right there. I like apples. I don't like that one. Or I like, I don't like apples in general, but I like pears. Like we, our logic is faulty. You know, we, we tend to, um, uh, read subtext where there isn't subtext. So I think just to say that it's like, carefully listen um just because you say there's a majority it doesn't mean that there's not a ton of people that this doesn't land on the same way and and um that their desires are there like there might be someone who's going well hey i'm really anxious and i just don't think this is the case for me that might be true um you know so like point taken um but uh i mean I, i've been teaching art since 
1998. It's a decent amount of time. Mm-hmm. How much time is that? Is that it's like 20 years? Yeah. Um, like solid. And so, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a lot of time to, to observe both, you know, in California and in Virginia. And that's a lot of time to observe similar phenomenons over multi-generations. And even like I, I had the privilege of working with a lot of really, um, longstanding good artists that were in their, um, that were in elderly ages, people that work with Rauschenberg. I mean, these were uh, these incredible women that, um, it was a group of ladies that I had this extreme honor and privilege to, to be like their kind of monthly critique person for, for three years. And, uh, they, this group had been going for 45 years or something like that. And every two years wow. they pick somebody. Yeah. And it was one of the, we learned so much from each other and I will always hold it as a dear experience in my, in my heart. And I was so amazed at how, when it got time to talk about art and look at their paintings, I mean, they were just like in a good way. They were just like the, the 20 year old in my class or the 18 year old in my class or the 35 year old friend in the studio or the gallery. I mean, they were age disappeared. Um, and you, but you were still dealing with these core things. I, you know, um, those that wanted to be rock stars still and hadn't obtained it yet, which was fascinating. And those that were really makers and had intention for their work. And, and maybe we're also a rock star and you could see these, these ideas colliding and playing out with people that have lived full lives. They were still chasing, there was still contrast. There was still frustration. It's, it felt very similar in some ways to like some of the inner dynamics of any art school anywhere. And, um, that was eye opening to me. You know, it, it, it made me kind of go like, well, goodness, like, um, this makes me have to think a lot about satisfaction, you know, um, what does it mean to have satisfied uh, uh, or a peaceful state of actually just motivation to make, hmm. you know, resting in the meaningfulness that is brought to bear by the outcome of the thing that you do and moving on to the next thing, because you understand that it all, it has consequences. It's not neutral. It's going to matter. Your efforts do matter. The arts matter. Um, and seeing people wrestle with that for their whole life, scared me a little bit. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, like there's nothing that says that I'm not going to be feeling exactly the same way when I'm their age. And it, it made me want to hunker down and figure some things out. I think a lot of, um, where my thoughts are resting with this is that we, we are constantly trying to prove that we have worth and that our work also has worth. Um, and so many of the things that we do that cause anxiety um, is that sometimes, uh, we're not even trying to prove that to other people. We're trying to prove that to ourselves. That's a you good know, point. We're just, you know, and I think a lot of anxiety can stem from that place where we're trying to like, you know, scream into the void almost like I, I matter and my work matters. Um, and some of that can come from, you know, like we've talked about the last couple episodes, different things within our culture or society that maybe, uh, push towards feelings of self-doubt and self-deprecation and, and a lack of satisfaction. Um, but some of it might actually be that we don't know why our work actually just has worth period or why right. we have worth period, yep. you know, like, um, so doing critiques, whether it's with, uh, professionals or students, um, I always start them off. And I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I always start them off saying, you know, like this is nothing personal. Yep. None of this has anything to do with you as an individual. Your work is a separate thing, even though it is an extension 
or a growth from who you are. Um, I think it's always important to kind of predicate it with that because, um, because the work that artists and designers do, do can be so incredibly personal um, that it is hard for us to separate. Um, but, you know, we mentioned uh, the other week as well, like I, at the end of the day, if somebody asked me, what do you keep the person or the work? You always keep the person because the, the innate worth is in that person first and foremost. And so in that respect, if we can, if we can get to a baseline where we understand that about ourselves and about the people around us and actually uh, live in a way that like shows that and doesn't just give lip service to it, like that's a huge step forward in a lot of things. But it also means that if we can, if we can get to that place and understand that the things we do aren't neutral, that, um, one way I talk about this with folks is, um, in terms of the broad category of cost, everything has a cost and don't hear this as just money, but a cost period. Uh, you listening to this podcast has a cost for you. You could be doing something else with your time, but you um, shouldn't, but, but you shouldn't definitely, <laughs> but wait, there's more. Um, so everything has a cost, right? You go to one movie. It means you don't get to go to the other movie, right? You know, you read that book. You're not having time to read that book or watch that show or do something else. So there's a cost to it. Um, so that's another way to kind of get around this idea of like, you know, nothing's neutral. Yeah. I think that's a good point. There's something tied that's up in point. everything that you're doing. Um, and so if we can say people actually are worthwhile as, as they are, as just existing, yep. as like just existing, you and I, what's the thing, great you, thing? I think you, you know, anybody doubts that I think you see that playing out across our political landscape. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the debate, right? Yeah. People it's, matter. It's yeah. the same thing. You know, uh, everybody trying to say, um, people are important. People are important. And I think that there are, um, I think there are very few people that just at the end of the day will sit down and be like, yeah, I get this. Can we move on to the other stuff now? Yeah. Can we live in light of that assumption? It's a staggering thought that we struggle with that, you know, that, that we struggle with it to the point that you see people dehumanizing each other and, Gosh, yeah. you know, killing each other. And, and, um, I mean, uh, so these are no light, these are no light issue. Um, and it makes sense that we would then struggle with um, totally the place of things. I mean, also, um, you know, I feel it like I uh, sometimes I'm just like, gosh, man, I'm going to tell this person I'm an artist, you know, or whatever. I don't even like call myself an artist, but what do you do? <laughs> well, I start telling them and it's just like for some people and you can see in their eyes, it's like, gosh, everything you do is trivial. Yeah, <laughs> You're no, like, that's real. Yeah, curate shows or in a gallery, teach art and, you know, I'm a painter. It's like do a podcast, whatever. And, um, it takes, it takes a lot of moxie and thick skin to continue to walk down that path with folks and, and have them roll their eyes at you or go. It know? does. I mean, the other, yeah. the other day I was meeting somebody who was, uh, coming to, uh, Richmond to go to medical school. And, uh, we were talking a little bit and, um, and the person was like, yeah, you know, I'm starting medical school, going to be this doctor. And I was like, that's fantastic. And no one ever bats an eye at that. They're like, that's great. No, definitely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, the person said, well, you know, how, how did you end up in Richmond? I said, oh, I, you know, I came here for graduate school as well. You know, that's it. He goes, oh, well, what was, what did you do? I was like, well, I got a PhD. I was like, oh, great. Like, what's it in? And I was like, it's in, it's in the arts. And he was like, oh, cool. I got other stuff to do. And I was like, man, that's like severely dismissive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, there's always that struggle. I mean, even if you feel like some of your categories are like totally tight and you're like, okay, yeah. 
people are worthwhile. People mm-hmm. are this. Uh, everything's good. Your work has value. Uh, let's talk about what this really means. Even if you're in that space, this is still like a huge, a huge feeling that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's no small thing to talk about. In yeah. Any way. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think that you know, if we <clears throat> if we understand people are worthwhile, and that uh, everything has a cost or nothing is neutral, uh, that we do then at some point we can understand like, oh, my work actually does have value and meaning mm-hmm. and is, is important. Um, I mean, it's, it's the same as, you know, if, if, if one of our voices were taken out of this conversation on every episode, it, w- it would materially change what this totally. is. It'd be so, so weird. So it would be totally weird. Um, like a racing de Kooning. <laughs> Sorry. It would be, uh, it'd be totally weird, but it would be, uh, like fundamentally different. Yep. And uh, again, it goes back to something I think was just fantastic that you said, uh, come on, probably a month ago now, of like, think about all the work that has never been made because of this sort of stuff. And we have to understand that's that's really what a lot of these consequences are. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about individuals with anxiety and things like that. But if we want to talk more broadly about even the entire canon, the scope, the history, the, the now, mm-hmm. the community of art right. and design making, like right. this, this, uh, this this procrastination, this anxiety, this uh, whatever we're doing, like it 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 is debilitating to an entire field. That's right. So, like, put it this way: how much work is made in response to work that is made that was not made for the intentions of others, but cheaply conceived in uh, towards the ends of personal gratification? Like, like think about. I mean, from architecture to fast food restaurants to uh, high end art to whatever it is. Um, Imagine an interconnected, responsive culture making that is infused with a lot of stuff that's busted and was never with with maybe let's say good intent or better intentions from from people that actually were fitted to to be doing better work because because their motivations were completely screwed. Now that's a fact, um, but it doesn't negate a responsibility going forward for anyone who wants to take on a responsibility to make in ways that, that it actually, uh, has impact, um, solves problems, con- enriches, contributes, cultivates. Um, we always, it's like every day in your studio, you have to take on that desire. And sometime in that, that means you have to have personal exploration and play And you know, nobody sees it. I don't mean this in like a relentless sense, but you know, like take, take, let me just be ranty and take, take texting and driving. So, um, you got, you know, I just got to ask the question, is, is Facebook really that important while you're driving? Hell, hell no, it's not. It's just not. Okay. So, but I watch people every day now with their head fully down driving, looking on their phones. It's, is so freaky, so staggering. Okay. So here's a, so what do we do? Well, we made this thing, you know, that give us access all the time. And one of the unintended consequences is people are addicted to it to the point that they'll sacrifice their life on the road to see what someone posted on Twitter or Instagram, right? So what's the solution? Driverless cars. So you can continue to look down, right? That sounds like a good idea, but do you see the problem? The problem is not, the problem is is not relinquishing more autonomy and turning the car into (laughs) artificial intelligence. The problem is put your phone down, turn it off because prioritize people matter right like um how about don't look at your phone while you're driving but i promise you we will move towards um driverless cars before we say really put the phone down 
because mm-hmm. we're too addicted. And so I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not, it sounds jerky, but I mean, it's a good clear example of what I mean when I say like culture making forecloses on what used to be the case. And, and, and sometimes the consequences are severe and you go, gosh, I missed that. That actually wasn't so bad. And we progress past it. We call it progress, but really maybe it was degenerated past that in some cases, some cases it's progressed past and we see both. And so, um, you know, it requires vision. It, re- it requires, uh, some sobriety and some, um, you know, like some real, uh, fortitude to say, I really want to be a contributor. I want to be a patient maker, an urgent maker. I want to tell stories. I want to make movies. I want to write songs, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, it's, it's definitely not a solo project. You got to have other people around you speaking in, you know? Yeah. Everything you just said, um, it, it, there's been this couple year long, I guess, uh, slow morning, uh, for, the way that um, the whole model of apprenticeship has kind of just been removed and and, and not just in art and design. I mean, in a lot of other fields as well, right? Mm -hmm. You you, you go to this technical school and you'll go do this for a year. You'll do some book stuff, watch some videos, and now you can be a fantastic uh, welder. Um, Whereas before you would have just gone to the job, Mm -hmm. done the job with somebody who's been doing it for 40 years and does it like artistically. Dude, we sound so backwards by talking about apprenticeship right now. But Don't I love we? it. I mean like I love it though. Yeah. But it's one of those things where like you you literally <clears throat> cannot sit here having this conversation today about art and design if you want to kind of wash out the idea of apprenticeship. Yeah. Like art yeah, yeah, art does not exist. No. I mean design does not exist. What are st- why are studio visits so important? In some ways they're the closest thing to a, a apprenticeship for a lot of folks. Yeah. It, it harkens to that that need that's still there, I think. Definitely. And you you know and 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 we know this uh, from our classrooms. Um, sometimes it feels like pulling teeth to convince students, like you should go get an internship somewhere. And they're like, well, what does that look like? It's like, oh, well, if you want to be a museum curator, you should go work under museum curators. If you want to be a painter, find a painter who can mentor you. And like, well, I just don't have time for that. I need to make. And we're like, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> and yeah, so- that's an ordering. So I was like, you know, I was saying before, like chaos, disorder, you know, that's an ordering kind of statement going back to the last episode that requires ordering and value placement. And in that also time and vision, because your goals have to be set clearly. And if you really love what you're doing, you'll do the dirty work. And that's what I always tell people. It's like, you know, I've said this before, but like when change my kids diapers, like I love my kids. So I'm willing to change their diapers and do it well. Mm-hmm. Do I like changing diapers in and of itself? No, it's gross. It's totally gross. Um, but I love my kids, so I can do the the full work of raising them, not just a partial work, because I want some perceived benefit. And I think as an artist, there is and a designer, there's creative, there's always dirty work. But a lot of the dirty work is is part and parcel to the full measure of execution for whatever it is that you're doing. And when you see perpetual skipping of the dirty work, you know there's some kind of there's like there's a kind of problem in there somewhere. There's some some desire problem, motivation problem that probably has to do with confused desires, uh, confused ends, and and cross wires as far as like what do I really want out of all of this? You know, what am I really hoping for? You know, um, is it more just me glorified in some kind of strange way? You know, propped up, or is it? You know, some of that, but I, I really want, I, I got to tell this story. This story must be heard because I've, I've been observing people for a long time and I noticed this and it just, you know, it's like, um, I've always been around someone who just picks up, like people ask him like, how do you, why do you, how do you do this? Like Sterling's a good example we had on the episode. It's like, 
he's like at 4 a.m. drawing like you know that's that's him having that internal desire and then the discipline too that's the conscious and the unconscious kind of coming together and it's like it's full orbed and you, i know a lot of artists like that there's a lot of people that i know that make um uh, uh i think about um it's funny like i think about matt like a friend who i taught with matt lively who does a lot of work in richmond and that guy's always making art you know like he's always making art there's no question he's gonna make art like if i get up and i'm like that guy's making art and he'll he'll blow through stuff good stuff you know i'm sure he would say he has stuff that he doesn't care about but the one question uh that's not there for him is like getting it done and working at it you know good you yeah. know the, the 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 full picture in um you know there's that kind of person. And then there's everybody else who's, who's thinking about it, you know, more or less. And then you got to ask yourself, why are we thinking about it? And it's because we have some unresolved issues as far as why we think we should or shouldn't do it. And in there is some, some cross wiring, which gets back to ordering and what we kind of fill our time with in order to, um, bide our time until fear kicks in enough through procrastination to then do the work. And I think that gets into satellite debris in a way that introduces that whole idea of triviality. You know, what are we filling our time with? It's unmitigated interest in candy, you know, cultural candy, things that are easy to suck on things that uh, go down easy things that are overwhelmingly tasty on the front end, but not necessarily nutritious or beneficial towards your life purposes on the back end. And so what happens is these kinds of, uh, cultural artifacts are just discarded, you know, and, uh, float around in our brains. Um, and I'm, you know, I struggle with that, you know, I mean, I've got a lifelong pursuit of triviality, you know, personally. Well, I think like, you know, just to kind of reiterate this again, I think it's important, you know, using words like triviality or like cultural candy, you know, that might, some people might just kind of bristle at that idea. But I think like one thing that's really important to remember is like these things don't have real definitions unless we understand what they're in relation to. Correct. Right. So we're like, this is not like a broad brush um, as I'm understanding. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. Ryan, but um, it's not a broad brush, but it is one of those things where it's like, we know what candy is because we know what like a fantastic, like amazing salad is. Mm -hmm. And we know what, you know, uh, eggs and bacon Mm -hmm. are. It's in that relationship that makes them... Um, more important. Um, and so it, it is one of those things where when we talk about triviality, I think one of the major pushbacks that I hear from people is they say things like, oh, well, this is a part of my creative process. And, and I don't, I'm not, I don't think that we're here trying to say like that there aren't trivial things that are kind of ingrained into a process that are helpful moving towards an end, but they're only helpful if they are in relation to like you're saying, prioritizing yep. the making and the the desire being there to actually make and not just appear to make or appear to be, um, you know, because I, I use this term all the time of uh, productive counterproductivity, you know, the, the times where you've been doing a project and you have to do something else. Or some people might even observe from like our podcast that like there are these random non sequiturs where you start talking about uh, mullets and El Caminos and like weird food. And what does that have to do with this? Right. And it's, and I think a lot of it is like, we can have those non sequiturs because they're not moving us completely away from what we're pursuing right. in the discussion. Yeah. They, they have a function in there. Yeah. So I think that there, it's, it's important to kind of just couch all the landscape. Yeah. No, know? I think that's super good. You know, it's super good. Yeah, yeah. If you don't, if you don't, uh, contextualize things and understand that, uh, there's differentiation, you know, so 
yeah, like there's there's triviality. What I mean by trivial is it's inconsequential in one direction or another in a yeah. profound sense. Um, like put it another way, if it wasn't in your life, would you, <laughs> would you die? Right. Um, you know, if Star Wars didn't exist, I would die, kind of, but I really wouldn't die. And I love Star Wars. You just die inside. A yeah, bit. die inside a little bit. Um, you know, or Taco Bell, like I always talk about, like. I can get on without Taco Bell, but gosh, I love Taco Bell. You know, <laughs> yeah. like those kinds of things are, are, um, have a place to play in my life. And, and, uh, are they contributing necessarily to my work? Not necessarily. Do I have some Star Wars characters hanging around in my studio? Totally. Um, are they kind of inspiring? Kinda. I like plasticky things. I like aesthetic, you know, I like bad aesthetics, maybe too much, which is maybe partly because I'm tainted by, all the trivial things I've consumed in my life. Mm. And um, I think, let me let me drive this all the way home really quick. Let okay. me just be a total jerk. Can Go I be a total it. jerk? Okay. Do it. We'll love I you feel, anyway, Ryan. I feel super convicted right now. I guess I'm, I, like, I feel guilty saying this because I'm like, okay. <sighs> if you don't believe that we overconsume triviality, then don't complain about why the ocean is full of plastic. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean... Don't complain about why the climate is changing. And don't complain about population. Don't complain about uh, storage. Um, people, I forget how many billions of dollars go towards uh, storage spaces for stuff that people never see again. That then like storage wars comes and cuts the lock on and somebody else buys it and then stores it in their home. Yeah. If you don't think that this is true then you can't complain about all this other stuff. You, you can't. We, we have created an abundance of triviality, which means there was an alternative option that requires vision, not just for yourself, but for the future. So you see, somebody 40, 60, 80 years ago didn't think well enough about us. And I suspect that we're not thinking well enough about our, our neighbors in the future. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so... We're, we're just like, well, I'm just self-expressing. I'm just, just kind of doing what I want to do that makes me happy. And who are you to say it's trivial? Okay, well, don't complain then. Don't be shocked when more animals are not around that my kids won't be able to see or your kids won't be able to see or our grandkids won't be able to see. You, you, nothing is neutral. You can't get around it. Like, don't, you know, it's, I remember people saying things like, well, you know, not, and not to get into this, but like, it's like there's got to be a correlation between uh, pornography and the rise of, of rape and, um, dehumanizing like people, men being just like utterly disgusting in, in the streets. Like, uh, don't tell me that it had no effect on anybody. You see what I'm saying? Like, no, um, so it's, it's weighty. It actually, and so, so we get into art and design. Like, I think there's a weighty opportunity. I think there's incredible opportunity. There's credible demand for, for uh, storytellers and visionaries and makers and creators to start to do the hard work of stepping towards casting a vision of a future. I know this sounds utopic, but that actually uh, both self-expresses, exercises your gifts, brings forward things that are satisfying and creative, but also with an end towards what's built in response to that. I mean, how many people think about it? Like, what will people do after they see what I've done? How will that actually activate another layer of conversation and um it it here here's what it does that places a responsibility on the maker that in in 
burden responsibility feels different than ease and procrastination towards rockstar because to feel anything of, of responsibility is like not very glamorous. It doesn't feel very good all the time. It feels weighty and it feels, and I think there's people right now in our culture bearing a lot of responsibility. You know, I think there's people doing, I think, like I said, the political landscape right now, there's people that are really bearing a lot of responsibility. So I think we see that in places, but I, th I think it's worth mentioning, you know, it's not to say it's not happening. It's just to say that it's worth thinking about it in stark terms. Uh, and maybe I'm being a little hi hyperbolic to, to make the point, but, um, you know, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta think about this. And, uh, if you start to, you start to see yourself in relationship to a past that got you here and you start to see yourself linked to, uh, 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 to the many, the multitudes of people that will precede you or go after you, uh, that you're in relationship to, you're in context to, and, um, that's humbling and scales you, scales you down, but it actually ought to excite us too, you know? Yeah, because I think there's a, I mean, there's an uncomfortableness um, in art and design when you start to think in those terms. Um, I think a lot of what we do, uh, if we talk about advancement or, or progress or whatever, a lot of progress is just moving us to a place where we can be 24-7 comfortable. You know, I mean, like that's yeah, why we have a lot of our big. inventions that we have. That's why a lot of things have been made. You know, we talk about efficiency, and that means that we have more time to do things that we want to do instead of the things we have to do. So I think that, you know, what, you, what you're talking about is, is a feeling of, of uncomfort um, yeah, that we point. almost have to get at and understand that it, in some ways, could be like a warning sign that maybe we're on the right path, mm -hmm. <laughs> so to speak. And not to put it universal, but... Um, no, that's a good point. But, you know, it's like... Um, and that, that's hard to kind of get across to somebody because so much of our life is oriented around this idea that we, this should feel more comfortable, right? I mean, yeah. the clothes we wear, I don't want to feel uncomfortable with my clothes. Mm -hmm. The food I eat, um, you know, I've got some food allergies. I don't want to feel uncomfortable after I eat. Um, you know, so I, I actively spend most of my day working against these things, yep. even in small ways. Yep. And so then to interject that into a conversation of like what you're spending your time pursuing and work as an artist or designer that's that's that that becomes a very disorienting feeling and I, I could see even some anxiety being built up in just that kind of transformation um i've had some uh i guess ways that my business has changed in the last few years and it was severely uncomfortable at first um the way it changed because um, I went from a stable of clients to a much smaller stable of clients that had mm -hmm. different kind of work patterns and workflows and um, it became really uncomfortable. But all of those changes came about because there was a kind of a, a bigger idea of what I was doing and why I was doing it. And in my case, uh, you know, having uh, two kids, it was also who I was doing it for. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was that aspect as well. You know, I wanted not just to be able to provide for my family, but I also wanted to be able to have my kids look at the work I did and say, I'm really proud of what my dad does. Yeah. Um, and there were clients before that I was working with where I did not see them saying that about it because I couldn't even say it about the work yeah, I was doing. Yeah, yeah, So it changed and reoriented, reoriented totally. some things. But there was a there's an uncomfortableness that comes with that that we just kind of have to understand going back to a metaphor we've used over and over again. Like when you're in the gym, mm 
Mm-hmm. Building the muscles is uncomfortable. Soreness is not fun. Yeah. It is not fantastic. Uh, sweating and hurting and thinking your heart's going to explode while you're doing stuff at the gym mm-hmm. is not ideal, but it moves to a better end. And if we don't have that uncomfortableness in the moment, we never get to the kind of, so to speak, better place. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that because like as a somewhat comedically, but you know, sweating and your heart hurting, like it's like, you know, I'll do that for overeating. You know, the post yeah. effects, I feel terrible and I've overeaten yeah. my heart. I'm sweating yeah. and I'm like, oh my gosh, but I won't endure sweating and the pain for, for actually exercising. And they're, they're similar phenomena, but for very different reasons, moving you towards very different ends. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, um, this is something that I, I meant to throw in the conversation a little earlier, but um, talking about the way that language can help contextualize what we yeah. talk about. Um, it's very easy in our society. Uh, I mean, everybody does this probably more times a day than you could imagine. If you could make a tick mark every day for the time that you say, the times that you say, I don't have time to do this. Mm-hmm. I bet we would be amazed at how quickly we'd fill up sheets with these tick marks. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have time to do that. <laughs> I'll never make that list. <laughs> well, I always tell folks, I'm like, when I keep hearing folk, people that say, I don't have time, I don't have time. Um, I'm like, well, how about, I read an article that said that you should replace the phrase, I don't have time with, I do not value. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. And, and I was like, now think of the things uh, and I'll even have students like make a list of things that you do not have time for. Mm-hmm. And now erase where it says, I do not have time for the top and replace with, I do not value. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to do that. I'm still in that idea. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and so some of the things that we do may not be fantastic, but they are actually helpful for other people. Correct. And so if we think about that, even within the scape of uh, art and design, you know, like, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple with what I do to look at the stuff that fills my time that I absolutely hate. And it's real simple. One of them is writing proposals for client work. So a client, uh, a potential client will send out a call for proposals and people will submit and you will spend hours writing this thing. Mm-hmm. And there is literally no expectation that you will get the work, but you spend the time doing it. Right. And you do it because what you're doing is planning out and showing the client what you're going to be doing and what the the pathway forward will be and what their expectations are. And you're doing a lot of things that are very necessary for the other, other, excuse me, other person to actually like be a part of this relationship. Well, so it's which very is, easy, which is like, I mean, just so I could say it's like, it's like pro- proposing exhibitions or to curators or to, yeah. you know, it's a similar thing you're, you're envisioning for them what you're able to bring to bear. And it takes work. Like you got to actually commit to that layer of the work. And probably I would say maybe in a, kind way 90% of those things are not for any given person going to come back positive. Yep. And that is not comfortable. Yep. Not and that fun. makes us sit there and go, well, what is it about me? Cause we immediately go the personal route. We yeah. say what deficiency in me has yeah. made this happen. Vitamin B. Yeah. <laughs> if only man, <laughs> um, uh, your proposal was rejected because you have a vitamin D deficiency and, um, <laughs> man, that, uh, now I can actually go on with my career. I can actually make these things happen now. But the, I think, you know, there's um, there's a lot of stuff that uh, is not comfortable in the work we do. And sure. so I think it gets down to, um, you know, that there is actual work in art and design. Mm-hmm. And I know from personal experience, when I started out, I was not thinking of the work. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't thinking of the work as anything but maybe like episodic work. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, there's work to do now. And then there's like this this kind of freewheeling life. Yeah. And then there's work to do over here. Instead of being a constant thing that we do, um, 
or a thing that we did when it was helpful. Mm -hmm. Cause I want to go back to what you said earlier. You said two pathways and we talked, um, I think we talked pretty good about the first one, but you also said something about therapy mm -hmm. for art. Um, and I know that that's actually a, a, a term a real, within yeah, a the valid. space. So that's I think right. probably we need some clarification sure. about what you actually yep. mean by that. Yep. I find a lot of people coming in, like I was going to be an art therapist and that for me, it was actually like, you know, 2001 or whatever it was. And, uh, the, the I think I've told a story about the per with Nikki's episode, but the person that ran the program passed away or I might've said it in my episode. And so it put it on hold and I was trying to converge to, to, to interest. I love people and I'd done, you know, some stuff with at-risk youth in Los Angeles and with bloods and crips and kind of grew up my own way a little rough. And so I had a heart for that and I felt guilt for wanting to be an artist and had worked in a great school and, uh, for a minute before going back to college that, that, uh, tugged me in, in the direction of art teaching and counseling. So, you know, I thought that, well, that would a great marriage, you know, of these things. And I didn't have a big enough vision to see how I could do both. And they don't have to be integrated on the, on the, at the social level of like the status I obtained from it, but they can be mutually enhancing facts that are just the case. So like, I don't have to be a therapist to counsel and I don't have to be an art therapist to counsel now, that's a valid category vocationally. So like that's, that's not what I mean by art therapy, but what's happened is art there art has for many, especially in the early stages become predominantly a therapeutic act that has personal benefit to them. Intuitively, that's the definitional assumption of what art is. Therapy is like timeout in a way. So then art is timeout. And that, that then has a conflict with the kind of art as having an, a societal impact. Art matters. People go to galleries. Like, and I, granted, I, I, you know, I take great pleasure and joy looking at, I love looking at paintings, you know, or a good sculpture or an installation or any number of things. Son, you know, a sound piece, like I love art. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't love it, you know, at some kind of real guttural level. But, um, at the definitional level of the assumption level, you know, these things kind of compound together. So you get into procrastination and then art is compromised in terms of that work. It, it is because now it's serving to therapeutically soothe the anxiety you've created. You see, so then it's co-opted back into, um, a maker sphere that, that stays in the realm of self-expression. And so what happens is people come to college and art was their therapy. And now they're being assigned projects and the art was soothing their anxiety. And now it's the thing creating the anxiety. So then what soothes them? And that's where you see a proliferation of like students that maybe are tempted into drugs. And I mean, I see people do this, like they start to go into a, a deeper, harder artist stereotype and they get into um, a set of social spheres where something else becomes the therapeutic component because now the art therapy in their life has betrayed them and become the thing that's creating the anxiety. You see, so that everything flips on its head. And so then art is contextualized towards therapy, which means it's typically not, it becomes hyper idiosyncratic towards the ends of that individual. And it's um, not really, so then like, you know, so this, where, where does this come to bear? Well, you go to a critique and someone is not unpacking this for themselves and it's intuitive for them. And you go to critique their work and they're crushed because you're crushing their therapy. Um, and you think you're just talking about their painting or their sculpture. 
and they are categorically hearing it as like a direct assault on the the means by which they feel soothed. That's worth considering because because here's the cool thing: like you can choose to to be a maker who makes to um, soothe yourself, and that's a valid expression. But if you're clear on that, then you're not going to have you know you're not going to put yourself into certain situations that put you on the chopping block. You see what I'm saying? You know, you're not going to subject yourself to critiques because you, you can't hear them as a critique. You, it's too personal. Um, but on the other hand, if you're not in that realm, that may explain why some people are not sure how to talk about your work because they're in the therapeutic realm mm, yeah. I, and they're going to feel like, I don't want to say anything that um, injures this person. Yeah. And so somewhere in there is a confusion, right? And, uh, um, I think it can produce a lot of stuff that's just not the best of what we can bring to bear within ourselves, let alone for anybody else. You know, I don't know. Do you, yeah, does, that make, does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think, you know, like just from all of this kind of accumulation of it, um, it sounds like, you know, we could do really well for ourselves if, uh, there was a kind of a better sense of personal honesty. Yeah. Um, and cause and I've I, done all this stuff, by the way, I was like, about to say, I, like yeah. this is not a finger yeah. pointing out. Like right. this is one of those things where it's like, if I, it, like today, if I could be more honest with myself, I think I could be a better designer, a better maker. Right. I could be a better, lot of things. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times we do end up, um, trying to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like we, you know, we try to soothe ourselves, mm-hmm. um, with certain things. Uh, so this idea of therapy um, I think it extends even past just this. I mean, like if, if somebody's listening to this that isn't an artist or a designer, like there's probably something in your life that right. you use as therapy in the same way. Yeah. Um, I know during uh, during college, uh, I got into a really bad spot and was more or less on the in the space of like a functional alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And so um, it it was something that I was doing because I felt like I needed it to get through the day to deal with problems, to if anything bad came along, that's what I went to. But I didn't, in the moment, I wasn't really seeing that. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of that was just a lack of personal honesty. Yeah. That I wasn't saying, oh, I'm using this instead of having the conversation over here with this person that's difficult. Yeah. Or I'm doing this instead of just seeing the situation for what it is. Um, and again, like if, if we don't think that these things are true, then why, why is opioid addiction yeah. So on the rise, how many rock stars actually do die from drug and alcohol overdose? You know, yeah. like you can't, you, we can kind of, these can sound like big themes, but there is some kind of disorderedness. And sometimes what happens is when you see it clearly and it's ordered, you just don't want it. No, well, that honestly, that's the thing. I've had people ask me like, well, how did you just like stop drinking? And I was like, one day I, it literally felt like I woke up and was like, this doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Like it doesn't make sense to do it to this extreme. And now I can I can go have a drink and not have a problem. Sure. That's not an issue. Um and I think it does. It comes back to what exactly what you're saying. There was an order to it where it was like this was not more important than these other things now. Mm-hmm. And because that order was there, it just it made the decisions easy. Like we are fantastic creatures and our brains are amazing in the way that they can once things are made clear, they can order things very functionally well. Mm-hmm. But um, also, I mean, in the flip, sometimes when everything is ordered in a clear path is set before you to be an artist. You just don't want it. No, that's very true. Because once you, because, because totally you're okay. like, you're, yeah, exactly. Which is like to come to the point where you're like, I don't want to be an artist. Cause like, you know, for me, um, it coming into like a more of a personal place. Like I, um, can ebb between the balancing act and then the integrating act. 
So the integrating act would be like my studio practice is a smaller percentage of the whole of what I do. Mm -hmm. So I teach full time and I make, I love painting, but, um, I've had to scale it in order to allow uh, ample space for Shaco art space to, to come about. And there's other things that I do that, you know, kind of off the radar, just in the, in the community care, this kind of thing. And, um, that doesn't need a platform, doesn't, doesn't need a recognition. And so that matters a whole bunch. And so, um, making sure that I actually have a, a good relationship with my family and my neighbors and my community really matters a lot. Making sure I'm a good teacher, um, uh, making sure I'm, 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 um, aware enough to be a supportive player in the community and the level of discourse that's going on in a multitude of ways, including the arts. And so what that does is like these, I start to have a sense of my capacity, which is limited and, uh, I can only do so many things. And so you're trying to, um, give priority and balance to things in that tension, you know? And so, um, if I'm in a moment where I'm juggling everything and balancing it out, it feels like I'm going to die. Um, when I understand it is already sort of integrated, there's a picture of peace that, um, persists because the parts have to play out over time and they're more cultivative steps. They're more like mowing my, like I, I always go back to gardens and stuff like that. It's more like mowing my lawn each week. Um, it's not a balancing act. It's a cultivating act. It's a stewardship. It's a keeping the weeds at bay kind of thing. And it's a nurturing. And so the, the gallery requires cultivating, nurturing. That's an ongoing relationship to people in the space. You know, we're producing a documentary, um, that we're in a heightened season of that. So there's a ongoing cultivation of that, that is temporary, that is different than a steady state of cultivation. The podcast requires or say the gallery requires right and so starting to get a feel for those things alleviates some of the pressure also understanding all of these things that we're doing are mutually enforcing a larger whole larger picture that we we feel like we can see and communicate to ourselves to each other to our families this kind of thing and so that's helpful because like when we're in a tough spot like i can communicate the whole and my wife and i can talk about it with the kids with our neighbors whomever and say like, because this is what we're working towards today, I'm not able, able to do this today. I can't do this. This is normally a high priority, but today I can't because this is in place of that. And this is temporary, you see, but the things that are not going away, then they, they require more consideration, um, in relationship to each other. You, you know what I'm saying? So, um, so that it's really in a way, the integration thing is not, not so much that, um, I've forced an integration It's that I'm actually seeing the integration. If that makes sense. It's no, it, it does make sense because I think a lot of folks, um, we, we may be real quick to kind of step in and be like, well, how, how do you like, you're talking about things like hierarchy and order and importance and priority and like who sets that. And I feel like that's always the kind of the first step question. I think it's real important to be like, well, no, nobody's saying that we set what that is, but we are saying that like, if you look at your life, if you actually evaluate a lot of, uh, the things that are important to you, like priorities are there already. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of acknowledging them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my work is never going to be more important than my family. Mm -hmm. It's just not, mm -hmm. but it's no. important to your family. And it is. And that's, so a, different, that's, together. A, that's right. It's a huge distinction. It's, if it becomes more important, that's a disordered love in a way. 
but it's important too. Mm-hmm. galvanizes the work. It doesn't burden it. It galvanizes it because it's essential yeah, to the family, but it never takes precedence. Not in, not in a steady state way, maybe a season. Yeah, it takes a, a lot of the weight off of that priority. Yeah. Right. Because it's not something where I can just toss the other out right. and say, well, my family's important. So I can just be completely derelict and we can just go yeah. live in the woods somewhere and yeah. pick berries all day. Right. Um, it's not that, but it is my family's more important. So my work can be in service to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also means that um, my work is not unimportant. Mm-hmm. It is still hugely important because mm-hmm. it becomes a facet of how my family is important mm-hmm. to me. Um, so there's a lot of beneficial things that come about mutually beneficial things that come about if we actually get some of the this stuff in order. And I think, you know, it, it becomes very helpful kind of moving into, um, and, and I mean, it feels like a pretty good time to move into kind of culmination of all of this. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think it also is helpful because it like, even just thinking about the family and work, uh, for me, it helps me understand a few things like when my work hours are best used, right? Because my family is more important than my work. Um, so it is, completely normal that the kids go to sleep, hang out with my wife for a little bit and maybe like 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I get back to work for a couple hours Mm -hmm. and that's fine with me because I want the priority of my family means that my evening hours are going to stay open Mm -hmm. and that works for me because that's where a lot of our family life takes place between Mm -hmm. about five and 10. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of the day can be ordered in some different ways. It mm-hmm. makes sense. And it doesn't provide a burden to me. Like I don't right. sit there and go, Oh, I've got to work these late hours today. But right. instead I think, no, I've, I've, I've made these late hours available because everything has right. been put into a place. It's together. It's integrated. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a, when it, when that's the steady state rhythm, then that also allows for, um, times where you're able to say, this is not normal, but tonight, we can't do this. I right. have to work all totally. the way through. And you, and then those are clear, clear categories, categories that are understood or there's even weekends or days where normally this is the case. And, but we, we understand the big picture. We're in a particular season. Like we're in a particular season with Shaco hard space where uh, some of our normal rhythms are upturned because of the great opportunities we've worked so hard for, for so long are, are finally coming to fruition. And so then you seize hold of those to establish the new normative steady state. And so there's always seasons. And so even when I was, you know, when I was like single and in making work, um, you know, there was a time where, um, I had a better grasp of like, there was, there were seasons where I was like taking care of myself and that required time. Like you were saying, so I had a value for that, like you were saying. And so because I was healthier, uh, work was coming easier to me by comparison, but then I turned my attention more keenly to the work and I tried to find the hours where I was more optimally creative. And for me, it was late at night, like a lot of, a lot of folks. And but what started to happen is for me, it, it, um, it, I got into like graduate school. I started to get more serious and I started to drift over into pulling, just not sleeping at all at night, sleeping during the day. And then I started to eat in a, poor away. I stopped exercising and, um, I started to find things slip out of balance and, uh, I stopped putting my life to order. So then like, you know, Laura would come to my house and it was dishes were like molding, you know, like it was just trash. But in the critiques, you know, I was bulletproof, you know, in my mind, except for I wasn't, you know, like, and so it made the critiques hurt more because I thought I was bulletproof. I'd done all this work. I've sacrificed everything. Right. Uh, to make these paintings and qualitatively the reciprocation to that work 
didn't change much. So I sacrificed all the stuff and like something didn't quite, it's not like I got an increase in benefit on the social side of things. Like I had already yeah. kind of obtained that. And I've used a story before, but it's just the truth. Like, you know, I had that, perf- I had found out I had some liver problems that it turns out I might've been born with, but my health wasn't, my eating habits, lack of exercise, these kinds of things were contributing to it. And, uh, this professor told me, you know, I'll never forget it. They said that they didn't think I was willing to die for my paintings. The irony was I was like dying for my paintings, literally. Like I literally had sacrificed uh, my mental health, my well-being, just so I could earn this social status that then wasn't being given to me. In fact, I was being told, you're not doing it actually. In a mythos, like in some kind of like weird uh, parabolic way or some kind of weird goofy way that actually was disregarding the, the state. Like I gained like 30 pounds. She was looking me in the face. I was like, had been crying earlier that day, you know, finding out that this news and they still had the audacity and just the ignorance based on their, their, their categories, their disordered loves, their, um, misprioritization, you know, their, their demand and, um, you know, multiply that into the hundreds of the thousands, you know, the millions of folks treating each other that way. And what do you get? You get a very anxious society. You get a very depressed society. You get a very, um, it ain't worth it society. A lot of people that are tempted to take their own lives and remove themselves from the equation. I mean, and then you get a chorus of people saying like, we need to care about each other and you get into a polarized place. I mean, like you could really extrapolate and see it, you know? Um, and so it requires a kind of conversation to sit down on this and say like, well, what can we do? And I think, I think that's the thing is like, for me, I've had a lot of freedom. Like I can go to my studio and see the paintings I've made. And so there's times where I make simpler work because I'm only afforded that kind of time. And so I I make the kind of work I want to make within the space that's allotted to me. And I rest easy when I go into a few months of where I can't work because I've decided to do um, X, Y, and Z in addition to the work. And so I'm just okay with that. And so what I found is the more I'm okay with that, the more ultimately most people that matter are okay with that too. Because they see it. They go, okay, I get it. I see what you're doing. Like you... You know, your work lives this way. You do this, you do art, you do the art space, you do X, Y, and Z, and that's your normative sort of endeavor and how you, you know, are a creator, if you will. And um, the steady state, even keeledness of it normalizes it in the sense that it's believable, they accept it, and a lot of the pressure goes away. And I don't need their approval in a sense. Like, I'm not worried about if I'm seen as a, you know, rock star or not. This doesn't, that's that's trivial. I mean, that's the, the, the biggest irony of it all is that the, the chief goal itself is trivial. It, it doesn't last. Yeah. You know, no, it's the truth. And I, you know, I think, you know, the idea of like steadiness, um, is really interesting. Um, because I know that, I mean, you know, work as a designer completely shifted when the idea of steadiness actually became reality mm-hmm. where it was like, you know, maybe every day, because, you know, you've heard people say, like, put put the same hours into your studio every day. Mm-hmm. Make it like a job. Yeah. And I've heard that. And I'm like, well, but but what we're talking about. Sounds so unglamorous. It sounds completely <laughs> disgusting. If we're think, I think we're being real honest. You know what right. I mean? Like, it yeah. sounds just totally it gross really does. to most of us. Where we're just like, you know, part of us, the, the immediate buck against that is... I didn't become an artist or a designer, so I could just have some nine to five job sitting in my studio. Well, real fast, why is that why is it the case? Well, avant garde, you know, bourgeoisie, 
uh, aristocratic culture uh, uh, looks down on the working class and to talk in a working class kind of way about the, the, the avant-garde, uh, the vanguard, yeah. right. Um, is a violation of your first premise. So, so now uh, we have a fundamental problem and there's no way forward. And so, um, uh, I'm going to have to like cloak Andy Warhol. I'm going to have to cloak the workmanlike attitude and approach or work person attitude or approach because, uh, I need people to see me as at the high end of things, you know? And if that gets so intrinsically entwined into our assumptions about art, then, um, you feel like you can't dislodge it. You feel like you can't separate those facts. So you're forced to be an eccentric, um, even if you're not. No, that's, that's fair. I think that, you know, it's the, the idea of steadiness, especially as you're, as you're catching this as like a, a, a larger cultural mm-hmm. historical conversation. Like it makes total sense why that would be a natural outgrowth and why most of us might not even really know why we're pushing against it. Exactly. You know, it's like, Oh, well here's a, here's a, a boulder that was started to push down a hill, you know, 400 years ago. And now it's just a speeding train. Yeah. And I don't really know where it came from. Yeah. Trains are always, always that fast. I don't know why. They just are. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's <laughs> driving that thing. We've always done it that way. Well, why? <laughs> well, your grandmother did it that way. Well, why did she do it that way? Well. Just her grandmother did it that yeah, way. Uh, <laughs> crickets. Hey, and that, that's where you get, well, hey, look at Who can know? All that matters is that you live in the moment. And you're like, no, you just are uncomfortable right now. And you're le- you're imposing a belief or a worldview to compensate for the fact that you just don't know. Yeah, so you're yeah. like, hey, we just gotta live in the moment. We can't think about that. No, we should think about that. And it's okay that you don't know. It's actually okay. You're not you're not less of a person. Yeah, for real. It goes back to the whole idea. Like you're you're worthwhile to begin with. Exactly. Like it. Like you don't have it's to weird. prove that. Yeah. But I think like, you know, like there is a. Uh, I keep watching Nacho Libre with my kids, <laughs> and it's like there's a buttload. I don't know about a lot you know like he's like i know a buttload about the gospel yeah <laughs> i do <laughs> my kids always walk around going i do yeah uh as a side note if you have not seen nacho libre you are missing out love that movie it grows on you it does yeah it's it's very good sorry so the satellite, uh, satellite debris see see what happens it's all there yeah but i think like you know talking about steadiness like we can't just we can't just throw out this idea of like that being like so terrible you know, there is something to it. And and it's not, you know, I think we, we oftentimes can say something. Like you said, we have a weird sub uh, subtext that we're reading into it. So when somebody says you need to spend time in your studio, uh, even if you're not making for a particular exhibition, client, uh, you know, journal, whatever aspect of art or design you're a part of, you need to be a part of that practice. I'm not supposed to be like, well, I'm not making this a, a, a job. Like, a, oh, well, you want to make, put me, just put a cubicle in my studio while you're at it and just mm-hmm. make it terrible and like soul crushing. It's like nobody's saying that. But we're saying the same way that you practice in the off season, mm-hmm. that you go shopping before you have to cook the meal mm-hmm. because all this stuff is preparatory, mm-hmm. right? So um, some of the anxiety we have, I think, is because we may – and again, coming from personal experience, we may have a tendency towards procrastination or laziness when things are not at their height. And then when it becomes that there's a crunch, there's a deadline, there's something, we are so brought into this mm-hmm. that we can't separate it. Almost to maybe a point where like we have to make the sensation felt because we have tied it so closely to mm-hmm. the act of making to begin with. Yeah. It's like if I don't have this anxiety, 
you know, of, of, of just the, the push behind it, the, the need for all of this. If I don't have that, then yeah, I guess it, I'm not really making. Yeah. It becomes an association with making it becomes synonymous. So if you don't have fear and anxiety on the inside, then you're not actually making validly. And so we, we actually don't have a good nose for what it looks like to make a lot of times without anxiety. Cause it, cause it actually feels easy. And so what happens is we think that ease means it's not, um, authentic or real. So here's the weird paradox that we, we tend to be a culture that there's workaholics, there's people that work hard, but there's a large percentage of creative, like there's this idea that, you know, if you do what you love, it's not work. What's, what was the implication there? Work sucks. Yeah. So do what you love yeah. and work goes away. But here's the funny thing. It's like the flip irony of that is the very same person that says that also is like, if I don't feel like I worked for it, then it doesn't feel like it's authentic. <laughs> okay. But what is the notion, the sensory notion implied in doing what you love? That it's fun, that it doesn't, that it's easy, that it doesn't feel like anything like, like what you can't have it both ways. And and people just live in this goofball paradox that, that it, 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 um, conveniently pivots depending on what state they're in and who they're talking to. And they never look at it and go, Maybe there's just a better way of processing this. Like maybe I don't have to just double down on that whole yeah. contradiction, that fractured idea. And um, because I, I know a lot of things that I love require work, family, and I don't always feel loving, but you work at it. You know, like I often think that sometimes actions produced feeling. So love towards anything or anyone entails action. And I oftentimes think that action takes primacy over feeling. And so like there could be days where you're like, don't feel loving, but you act according to what you've promised. And then the feelings follow, they show up. And as opposed to letting feelings dictate things and then nothing ever happens because the feelings don't match. And it's like, now I think love entails like a sacrifice of a kind such that I'm going to show up and teach, even though I don't feel like it. And then some of those days are my best teaching days because all of a sudden I'm feeling it. I'm like, I'm so glad I came here today. And that happens in my studio. There's days where I don't feel like painting and I lay down some stuff and I come back in the next day and I'm just like, oh, so glad I did that. Yeah. And now I'm, now I'm working in a second day of gratitude and my mental clarity is better and I've built something and it's moving in a direction, you know, and, and that's in relationships. That's in society. It's like, um, you know, again, it goes back to like these orders, like what, what orders our life? And if you take away neutrality, if you take away you at the center of the universe, you know, uh, that the world doesn't revolve around you. And, um, we really, really assume diversity to the widest extent, uh, meaning people that utterly disagree with each other. Um, and then you talk about hard work as not being a bad thing. Um, but also not being an insurance for these upper echelons of creativity. Um, then you might be in the, kind of the right constellation, the right framework to, to kind of like do some persistent things. And some of that stuff may surprise you. And, you know, it's like a lot of people that were movers and shakers didn't think that they were. And then the irony is like, they didn't necessarily, um, like Kurt Cobain didn't set out to be like Kurt Cobain. And I mean, I think it's why his life ended in tragedy. It's like, I think he ever wanted that. You know, I mean, if just you think about like, um, and maybe there's people like maybe Steve Jobs was like, I'm going to change the world, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, maybe. Um, but there's a lot of people that, that, that it's like, 
Um, they just went about their business doing what they were compelled in terms of their vision. And then they just become canonized as historically significant. Um, but they didn't necessarily go, I'm going to be historically significant. And people are going to think about me for thousands of years after, you know what I mean? Like that would have gotten the way of the work they were doing. And so the irony of that is like, um, you know, I used to always say like, there's people that be like, I want to be like Rembrandt. And that means two things. One is sometimes it means they literally try to paint like Rembrandt, which is fine. But what you're really saying is I want to paint in the style and manner of Rembrandt. But if you want to be Rembrandt, then you got to work with the medium of the day. That is the most advanced technology of the day, which means you're not a painter. And so I used to say that probably the, the Rembrandt of the day is probably Steve Jobs and Apple. You know, I used to say that because they were the ones working with image and light in a medium that facilitates ideas in a, ta- in a, in a kind of like a robust way or whatever. And so, um, the sense of like what that can mean can, you know, needs to be clarified, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, if, you know, it's like, um, deeper intentions towards some end, like some cause, some focus, or it's intentions towards self exaltation. And we, we can smell the difference. You know, you can see it in the political debates. I mean, I don't want to get into that, but you can see people that are there. That's where hollow politicians ring true because they're there for themselves. We can see it. And then you can see someone who actually has conviction and beliefs. And sometimes they're not the most glamorous person. And that, that creates this wedge because do we want the mirror of self exaltation or do we want the truth teller that doesn't mirror us? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 No, that's, um, (laughs) that's an uncomfortable question. Yeah. Really (laughs) uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable question. Um, because I don't know, like, um, you know, talking about even like relational things and community and the people that are around us. Like I want those people in my life, whether it's professionally or personally. You know, because at the end of the day, like, I don't want to wake up five years later and feel like I'm still the same person I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to feel like I've gotten better at things I didn't think I was very good at or that I've gotten to be a, a kinder, more loving, more patient person, that I've gotten to be a better teacher, that I've gotten to be a better husband and father, that I've gotten <clears throat> to be a better brother and son and friend. You know, I, I want those things. Yeah. And so I want the people. <clears throat> I want those too because I got to deal with you. <laughs> <laughs> so relationally, if you could get better, that'd be better for me. I mean, what's in it for me? If you become a better person, then I don't have to, you know. It's like in my best listen, if you become a better person, everybody could change. We all could change. Somehow Rocky Four saves the day. He goes to Russia and they are chanting his name. I'm sorry. <laughs> We all could change. <laughs> Where's Rocky when you need him? I man? know. We need to get Stallone on this podcast. He's got, look at my friend used to work in his, we'll get back. I'm sorry, dude. My friend used to, my friend installed TVs. Um, he passed away some time ago, my friend John, but, and he installed this TV that like dropped into, like dropped in and out of a wall. So it was behind a wall and is this whole hydraulic system way back in the day. And uh, he took pictures, man. Stallone's house. I mean, I I like Stallone movies. I'm not going to lie. But his house was full of images of himself. Oh, wow. Oh, I got stories. I mean, he had, dude, he had statues in the back that were like marble statues of him and his wife, like in like these kind of Greek, 
and paintings, you know, and he's just like a serious art advocate, but <laughs> in a way that really, I mean, it was just paintings of him. <laughs> That's a, oh man. Oh, if I could change. <laughs> so speaking again about uncomfortable, <laughs> what's just an uncomfortable uh, context period? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all want these people in our lives that really do speak truth. But then I think when rubber meets the road, we're kind of like, uh, maybe not. Yeah. Not um, from you. You're not candy enough for me. Yeah, You're not like, palatable. If you could change your truth about me to be the truth I believe about myself, that'd be more appropriate. Right. I feel like in this conversation. Um, and again, you know, it comes to an uncomfortableness, but it also comes to, uh, there, there's so many different ideas that swirl around this. And one of them is that like, we are not on any trajectory towards like being different or better, mm-hmm. you know, like that we've got it. And, you know, even going back to the idea of apprenticeship, like even the idea that like apprenticeship only happened in education, you know, that oh, you've graduated, you don't need this anymore. Yeah. You know, that like mentorship has been thrown out, you know, like. The first few years in Richmond, uh, I was really searching around for anybody that had any interest as a designer in being somebody that could kind of just take me under their wing and just mm-hmm. be like, hey, I've got questions. Could I just email you a couple times a year? Mm-hmm. Almost no interest. Crickets. Like, just nothing. <clears throat> and I think, you know, some of that is 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 telling of maybe the anxiety of like, oh, is this person going to come in and like get the people, the clients that I want to get or something like that? But I think it's also, it, we just remove that even from the equation in so many ways. And, and, and again, it's, it's been a long period of mourning for me over that. Um, cause now, I mean, you know, approaching 40, been a practicing designer for, you know, at least 12 years. And this is, uh, something I still want. Like, I still want that. Like I want the designer who says, you know, Hey, here's the experiences I've gone through, the stuff I've had. Like I, I want that relational piece and I want it because I want there to be some truth, but I also want the relational piece because like we were talking about with candy and like salads, because if I see somebody that's actually done really well in their career, they've, um, they're a, a fantastic person and they've done good work. Mm-hmm. Like then it gives me something to say, well, okay, so they're doing these things, but I'm doing these things. And so maybe I need to change some stuff. Maybe my practice is a little weak. Yep. Maybe my time management is poor. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe I'm not actually being an advocate for myself. I'm just hoping that people will find me. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a lot of different things. Or, you know, maybe uh, going back to, you know, folks we've had on the podcast before, um, like with Sterling's story of when he went for a job interview uh, with Rolling Stone and they were like, your work looks exactly like your professor. Yeah. You know, those things you don't find out just by kind of swirling in your own whirlpool. No. So with people that are just capitulating what you already want to hear, an yeah. echo chamber. So you need yeah. that person who's kind of going to rub up against you and be like, revelatory. I love you anyway. That's right. But let me let you know. Yeah, it's revelatory. It's somebody breaking into your circumstances outside of the flow of them, and it's disruptive. And we talk about that in, in, pos- in positive ways. Like we need disruptors in culture, and we see large trends that are, that are becoming problematic. We want people that disrupt that. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of great artists that function as disruptors. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of awesome stuff that, that artists do. I mean, art, art, I think artists are so intrinsic to uh, the building of a society and, and establishing checks and balances, catching, cashing, cat, casting vision. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think artists are great diagnostics for the state of health for a society, whether it's in decline or it's flourishing. You know, like some of the great poets, I was uh, uh, 
actually watched a video done on Sterling's uh, book, Illustrated or Captain by Captain with Whitman and uh, Lincoln. And um, what a what a parallel two visionaries brought together as a story by two visionaries, the author of the book and the artist. I mean, it's just a great yeah. kind of synergy, like a great opportunity that encompasses a kind of history. And it's like, where are the poets? You know, where are the visionaries? Uh, where are the thinkers that um, have a burden for, for the people and um, are not just the, in it for selfish, selfish interests. I can't help but think about that with our politics. Like where are the, where are the, it's cheesy, but where are the poets? Where are the people that are sensitive that actually uh, are robust and have a vision and have a love and a burden uh, that, that are moved and um, have been doing the, the work, you know, um, not just the work of being a politician, but the work of actually being a human being and, and pining away. And I don't know. I wonder. Um, so what well, I think, I mean, you know, with all this, um, you know, we've spent, at this point, I think we're probably moving on like five hours talking about anxiety. And yeah. so, um, I don't know if we wanted to kind of bring it home with some like real kind of tangible things we've understood, uh, ways that we found integration to be easier, uh, anxiety kind of be, uh, pushed off or even just avoided completely. Um, I mean, um, you know, for me, I think one of those things is, um, I mean, just to get super basic mm -hmm. is time management mm -hmm. because I've been, I've always been really good at saying that tomorrow has a lot more time than it does. Mm -hmm. So I'll say things like, um, well, I don't have to worry about it today because tomorrow I've got four hours in the afternoon and I can do it then, even if it's six hours worth of work, I'll just shove it in that spot. So I've had to be very proactive about understanding that even in little spaces, like I need to take, take advantage of the little time I have at different points to move projects along and some of this comes out of the fact that high school and college, I would do projects and I would do them because I would say, oh, here's like 11 hours in a row where I'm going to be in a studio or in my apartment, in my room, just doing this thing. And so that has carried over, even though the context of life has completely changed. I don't have 11 uninterrupted hours in my life mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And so... If I have an 11 hour project, I've got to do it over a space of many days. And so I've really had to, to kind of just like look at stuff and say, well, here's, here's one thing I can be super anxious because if I wait to try to do this all in one day, it not only does it feel the weight and the burden of the procrastination, but the weight and the burden burden of an insurmountable deadline that I can't possibly meet. So I've had to say 45 minutes is good enough today and I can walk away from it and I can still think about it in my mind and deal with those uh, sort of conversations internally and then come back to it tomorrow for another hour and a half and another four hours on Saturday and things like that. Um, so time management has been a big one for me mm -hmm. in terms of what this looks like. Uh, and I'm nowhere close to anywhere I'd love to be, yeah. but I'm so much better than I was. Yeah. I mean, so if I were just being completely honest, I'm coming out of like a most utter dereliction when it comes to, time management, responsibility over almost anything, except for what I really wanted to do. So, you know, historically that would mean like, it was very, you know, very good at like playing sports or doing art and everything else just suffered. I've said this before. So, um, it's, it's a long road. It's been a long road for me to actually, uh, sort of round myself out or be rounded out by the developing careful hands of other people helping me grow. 
and I've become a little better at scheduling, but I, but you know, um, that's in reference to where I'm coming from. And so in reference to maybe someone who's really good at it, I suck. Um, and you know, I think my wife could speak to that and say where it's changed, but where it's not up to par and where it needs to be. And even in managing a gallery like this, these are things that I'm constantly working at. So it's always funny to me. There's some people that think I'm hyper scheduled and together. And, uh, and then there's other, you know, there's other that will look at it and go, you're not at all. And some somewhere in there growing, working on it. But a couple of things that, um, served early on as a paradigm shift is one is, you know, coming up in my family, we didn't have a lot of money. And, uh, there was a point where, where my stepdad and mom were, uh, it was a real bad situation and he kind of left us. So we went bankrupt. And, uh, so money just became like, just my mom and I, my brother, money just became a real big fear. Um, and you almost didn't want to look at it. You just kind of hoped for the best and spent and hope that you didn't get tagged with credit card debt and extra, you know, uh, penalties and this kind of thing. And so you kind of lived in this intuitive space where you had a reasonable idea of what maybe you had a month, but you never looked at it. So in my adulthood, like I didn't look at my bills. And so, um, that carried over into my marriage with Laura. I accrued, accrued debt and, and, uh, um, she's very good at this. She was raised differently than me. She was given some tools. She has some capacity. And so we would fight over this. I was like, I don't want to talk about this. It was so mounted full of fear. I couldn't even sit down and talk about money at all. So it came to a head and we went to some classes and it came down to like, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. We're struggling. And so, um, one of the problems was that money wasn't tangible for me because I was just doing credit cards. And so we started to look at the totality of our monthly bills. What do we actually make a month? And then what do we, what's our total income? What are our total bills? What's left over? What do we need to make? And we started to, um, we literally wrote them out in, um, what all those were into envelopes. And then we started to live with just cash. We paid down our credit card debt and live with just cash. And so what that did was we had an envelope for splurge money, you know, cause we just knew we were not robots. Um, but what that did was it start and it took a long time and it's still a work in progress. You know, this was years ago, but we, it started to give me a tangible sense of every month, all those envelopes were empty by the end, but then more money came in that month and it started to tangibilize something in place of the fear of not dealing with it. And it started to show me a healthy rhythm of stewardship and responsibility. And what happened was in any month, we could look at all our different envelopes. I forget how many it was, five, six, seven envelopes. And we could start to go like, okay, we're going to have to pull a little bit of money from envelope uh, dealing with our, our, um, our groceries because we spent a little more on splurging. So I'm going to have to sacrifice a little bit this month on our groceries. It means we're not going to eat as freely as we, what, what we've established based on our total budget. And, you know, we kept living in that. We paid down our credit cards, got them all the way paid down, thankfully. Uh, but it also just taught us as two families, two, two people that were brought up in families that actually didn't manage their money well, but one was given uh, some categories for numbers like, and the other was not. And so that started to carry over. Actually, I started to see time that way as envelopes where tangibly, I only have so many hours and I know that qualitatively uh, certain things are going to take on more time precedence 
other things are going to take on more quality precedent, but maybe not the same amount of time. And so my relationships started to become more qualitative rich where maybe the quantity was diminishing. So let's take my family. I don't spend as quantitatively much time with my family, but the quality is exponentially ramping up. Uh, everything takes on more significance. And I had to make that leap. I was misstewarding or mi misappropriating my time with my family um, to justify feeling like I was doing family life. And so there's a, there's a sense where like my wife and I holding hands means a lot more than it used to because not take it for granted anymore. It's not assumed as a part of a rhythm. It's, it's a relational qualitatively rich exchange that my kids see and they know that there's something there. Um, when I sit down with people, I don't have endless time. So when I sit down with them, it matters. It means that there's, there's only so much time to give them. And so I can either schedule it in and check out, or I can schedule it in and check in because I know that in the, the scheduling of the calendar, if you will, the envelopes, if you will, that I have peace of mind that I've given this, this, this two hours, two hours of my time. I know I can sit down with them. And so what that should look like is Laura and I every, uh, week, you know, um, writing stuff down on the calendar. Laura's better at it than me. I still fail at it and I'm working at it. And she, this week was tough for me. And so she, drew a huge calendar on a piece of paper on a door to overstate the next month of where non-negotiables have to happen for the projects we're doing, which helps everybody see it so they can start to adjust their expectations. And um, the scheduling externalizes some of the internal angst that can wreak havoc on my ability to be present before any one thing. So I need to get it outside of myself. And, and in this case, so for, for some people, it, it needs to happen through friendship. You're not everybody's married, of course, right? Or they don't have a significant other. They're in a dating relationship or maybe they don't have a family member or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's helpful to have externalized um, reminders of what you've already planned for. Because like for me, it's like I used to have an anxiety about how much money I was spending because I never knew if that meant it was going to kill me or not. But then when it was like, Oh, I've spent all my money on groceries, but I have groceries to eat. And next month I will do it again. Um, it started to bring a peace into my conscience, into my, you know, general state, um, because I knew I had responsibly allocated, which meant means that whenever something is extraordinary, it's against the baseline of a steady state. And that means that you can ma uh, manage the extraordinary circumstances with a reference point as opposed to it being one more undifferentiated thing that actually just crushes you. Yeah, it's a lot like uh, if, if you were dropped in the middle of a national forest with a map or without one. Mm -hmm. You're in the same situation yep. in both cases. But because you have a better lay of the land... Yeah. You, you understand the context a bit more like there, there is a fear that is not even a part of that conversation with the map as without one. Mm -hmm. All of these things make sense. And, and just as you're thinking, I'm like my way of thinking about time is like shifting because I hadn't thought of it in that respect, you know, that, um, like I, I come out of a space where like the idea of budgeting feels very like second nature, but not with time. Mm -hmm. Um, time is different. Um, and so I'm sitting here thinking and going through and saying, okay, how much of my, my splurge time is actually the majority of my time, which goes back to earlier. Yeah, we if you actually about. tangibly put your time, your hours into envelopes and you see it, 
then you start looking at how you're spending it. Yeah. Which is, I, I have students do that sometimes. I'm like, let's make it tangible because we live in such an immaterial space with a lot of what we give our time to that it makes time feel as though it's not there anymore. What happens to time when you're having a good time? It just goes away. It goes away. What happens to time when you're miserable? It is evident. Evident. It stays all over. And so then what happens when you want ceaseless time or, you know, the absence of time because we associate that with a good time. I mean, can you see how all these things start to start to create an anxiety? You can't have it both ways. Yeah. You can't, you can't do that. And, and that's why quantity over qual. That's why qualitative states are, are like the. It seems like they're the, the goal. It's the quality of the character of the person. It's the quality of the relationship. It's the quality of the work. It's, it's why artisanal everything exists right now because yeah. we recognize there's a kind of flattening of everything that is diminishing quality. And so, um, we, but we, we come out of, uh, uh, an assumption about quantity to the exclusion of quality, you know, a lot of times. And, and I know this is goofy and we still got to define those things at some point. I mean, these are like big discussions, but, um, you know, a lot of times the disorderedness will do things like I'm guaranteed that I've put in my hours. Yeah. But you didn't, you maybe not needed those many hours if the quality was there. Because right. a glance can be powerful between two people that love each other. Um, when you're present. And, and I, I do both. You know, I have days where I think Laura and I are probably, you know, just as my closest, my best friend, you know, my wife, Laura, like, and she's a huge part of Chaco Art Space. Um, most, anyone who's come to shows knows that. Um, there's times where we can look at each other and it says everything and not to be savvy, but just really like we've put, cause we've put time in together to where the quantity yeah. has become significant. Um, and then there's other times where there's an absence of quality. And then I got to look and go, we've, we've missed, I've, we've missed stewarded a situation and we're, we're not in contact the way we need to be. And so maybe we need to spend some time now and that's a valuable thing. So we're going to spend the time to get the quality there. And then maybe that doesn't entail the same amount of time, if you will. And, and I think, you know, as you, as you, as you move through life, like, you know, like in the dating phase with someone, you, you, um, and I, I I'm using dating, dating and relationships, like even art in grad school, you know, parallel, you spend hours just with that person on the couch, you know, just endlessly watching movies, eating food, you know, just gorging yourselves in each other. And nothing about that sets you up for the life that's ahead of you if you choose to partner together, right? The same is true with artists. A lot of times we spend so much time in the studio in grad school. And what it does is it, it's, it's, a, it's an important time. But if you don't understand the change that's coming, you'll normalize that as the expectation. Hmm. You know. And one of the best things that ever happened to me was this. When I was in my MFA at VCU, I got hired at Art Foundations uh, for a set of circumstances. And what happened was um, I had... ex uh, the grad teaching assistantship paid more, which also meant I had more work. My peers didn't have as much work to do outside of their studio practices. I did. So on some levels, my work suffered a little bit, but I had to become more of a time manager, time manager and more diligent over the studio time that I had. And I knew the, the greater good far outweighed whatever apparent loss there was. And, and lo and behold, I'm teaching full time at VCU in Chicago, in, um, art foundations, you know, and, uh, and I learned how to balance not just my studio practice and my job, but my studio practice, my job, a gallery 
that's exponentially growing into more. And I would never change that. You see what I'm saying? Like, and it, and it, it, um, it's given me a, a kind of a, a, a way forward. And it has to do with that re re enchanting yourself to the tangibility of things. We're just, we're disenchanted. Um, we're disenchanted and we don't know why. And, uh, we're filling around in the dark a lot of times. And some of that has to do with getting back to kind of like a grassroots earthy epistemology and a good hermeneutic for interpreting the world we find ourselves in, you know, which is a whole other discussion, but I think that's, uh, that's big. I mean, like one thing, um, I'm hearing is like, um, not just from students and artists, but even like in what you're saying, Ryan, this, uh, idea of kind of being, we all want to be very present in the moment we're in, mm. you know, like that's, that's a huge push for a lot of folks is to be where they are. That's the mindfulness are. thing right now that so many yeah. people are, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's tough, mm-hmm. but, but what you're saying has huge implications into that because to be qualitatively present in the moment, there may have to be a quantity a large quantity of work that has already gone in to that quality. Um, and so I think a lot of the times we want, um, we want to have our cake and eat it too, right? We want to, we want to be present in the moment, but we may not want to do the work that allows us to actually do that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we say, well, I'm, I need to be really present in this moment. Mm-hmm. And what you're actually saying is I want to abdicate all responsibility for anything else. Mm-hmm. But I also somehow, even though I'm abdicating the responsibility of the work, I want to, try to grasp onto all any of the success mm-hmm. and um and that's a that's a sobering thought it's mm-hmm. a very sobering thought um so i mean pe- people should people you know if you're if you're sitting here listening and like i would just challenge you for a week to take a diary of how you allocate your hours yes. that's, that's a fantastic thing how much time do you sit on the toilet mm-hmm. um how much time do you take to eat just 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 take a take a stock of it how much Nobody can tell me you can't find out how much screen time you play. Your, your phone will tell you how much screen time you're giving to like oh, yeah. every social media, social media, whatever it is. And look at those things and, and, um, and look at how much time you have. Just do it for a week and then look at where you tend to be the most awake or the most excited and, and look at how that correlates. And then um, ask yourself what you can uh, dwindle down to an extent. And yeah. don't be a robot. Try to give yourself splurge time. Um, and then look at where that increases available time towards things that matter more so to what you say your desires are. If you say you're an artist or a painter, um, you want to have a, or a designer, you want to have a balance, but you want to have a, or a harmony, if you will, an orderliness to things. But what, um, what, uh, yeah, what are you giving yourself to that's just excessive and arbitrary to what your stated goals are? Be honest with yourself. No one else has to know. Just look at it. Maybe show it to a friend if you want accountability, but um, which I would do because I think you should sh- share your life with people in a way that is mutually beneficial and it helps you yeah, totally. actually grow. I mean, mm-hmm. I can tell you like good friends and knowing being known, like we say, matters all the way to the core of what I think human beings are. And um, and so I would do that and then try to be gracious in knowing that you're not going to respond perfectly to those facts you discover but if you slowly start to work towards shifts, you may find one of two things. One is you start to become better at the things you want to do, or you may find out that the more opportunity you get to do them, you don't want to do them, which is beautiful because then you just don't have to just do something different. Or you go, Oh my gosh, I do want to do this. And I actually think I can do more. 
you know, I can do more. So coming full circle on the, the question, how do you do this? I don't know how you do this. Well, um, uh, I've made priorities in my life and which is diminishing the amount of time I spend doing things that I like, but are just not part and parcel to what matters most. And so I'm actually making, which is really hard to do in our culture, differentiations. I'm making value judgments, qualitative value assessments. What is actually going to contribute the most? So for instance, for me, just for me, I read, but I mostly read nonfiction. I like fiction. I want people to write fiction. I myself cannot allocate but so much time to fiction because it's not essential to what I do. That's for me, right? And so... um, there are things that I have to, I've stopped doing completely that I loved my whole life. Um, I don't really watch sports anymore at all. Um, unless it's to, to hang out with a friend. Now, what I do do is I'll, I'll, I'll maybe catch some cool highlights on YouTube or Facebook. That's like how much is diminished down. I will not, I used to schedule my life around what events were playing when I was a young kid or whatever, you know, games, you know, it, it dictated my calendar, my schedule, the rhythms. Oh, it's football season. Oh, it's basketball season. Oh, it's baseball season. And every season has its own significant time frames, And those, those sort of dictate the flow of my life. I, you know, I'm older. I'm not there anymore. Um, and so I don't need it. I, it doesn't, doesn't play the same role. Doesn't mean it's not important to somebody else. It's just, that it doesn't, it, it's not the most con- significantly contributing thing. TV. We don't watch as much TV anymore. I'm not anti-TV. I'm a TV junkie. Um, I, you know, I uh, um, will watch uh, select shows on select nights. Um, I can. I mean, the one thing I love about like Netflix, thanks to certain people in the room, um, is uh, um, there is a potential to binge watch. So you can say, hey, for the next two days, we're going to watch this much, and then I can just like, yeah, you know, yeah. I can I can balance it. Um, I can know that I'm burning time on something and then weigh the cost. Um, but, uh, the, the stuff that's true that, that is, is more closer to what you want to be doing. Um, really doing it is so much more satisfying than estimating it, weighing the cost, assessing the success of the outcome. Uh, getting anxious and procrastinating so that you can have enough motivation to even partially try. The differences are, are so extreme. Like letting things live beyond your grasp after you've done it mm-hmm. is so worth doing over and over again to the point that you start to really see that um, you can have like a better alignment with your desires and your goals. And, um, and you can have relationships with people. You know, like I just feel like too many times artists, creative people are, are pressed to the place where they feel like they have to die to justify their efforts. And if, if there's anything, I'd love to push against that a little bit. And there's always going to be someone way sexier, way smarter, way more successful than me or you saying the yeah. opposite. That's you true. know what I'm saying? There's, mm-hmm. there's someone right now listening going, that's effing BS. And I'm ticked right now because, um, what you're doing is you're affronting their, their altar of worship, like they're at the top of the the pinnacle and you're just saying, yeah, pinnacle doesn't matter. And so then the worshipers walk away and that's going to frustrate somebody, you know? Um, but what kind of society do we want to have? You know, what, what is create creativity for artistic aesthetic value for, um, is it for worshiping and exalting individuals or is it for the development of 
whole societies and the flourishing of everyone, including the people that actually uh, um, have determined or ha- has been determined for them that they, they actually can't spend the time considering those things. You know, do we make societies beautiful for people that are in poverty? Or do we uh, impoverish them aesthetically because we're exalting ourselves, busy trying to be rock stars for who, for why, you know? I mean, it it begs the question, like, why do we have a lack of satisfaction that won't go away? Why should we ever feel like we need an internal satisfaction? Um, Those are questions we should think about, you know? You should ask the question, like, why is that? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, like, uh, with that... Uh, I think it's easy for us also to get into a space where we say, um, where we can be like, yeah, I, I, I totally get what you're saying, Ryan. I get on board with that. But it sounds like such a, just a, a huge shift, a huge change. Like that, and that in itself feels just daunting. And so I would say, you know, if you're going through like an exercise where you're, you're charting out and looking at what your days consist of time wise, like don't, don't belittle 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. You Correct. Know, don't, don't over, or underestimate the power of like a 15, 20 minute practice. Um, I have a friend who works with folks in all kinds of different industries and he tries to infuse creativity as a daily practice into what they do. And some of the uh, firmest pushback he gets is when he just tries to get people to do five to 10 minutes a day of just some simple creative exercises. And that's in that in the five to 10 minutes is where they say the most, I don't have the time. I can't do this. This is a waste of my time. Um, which is much more a conversation of value than anything else. Correct. But it's, uh, but it's one of those things where, you know, nobody's asking you, like, if you look at your time that you spend and you say, Oh, you know what? Actually I'm spending about eight hours a day as the statistics go engaged in just some kind of screen time. If that's you, nobody's asking you to stop that tomorrow and change that for eight hours of studio practice. But we are saying there's 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 a value in the knowledge of that. It's been valuable to us in the ways that we've understood that in our lives in different ways. Um, but it also means that uh, 15 minutes less of that tomorrow that gets put towards studio practice is a win. Yeah, it doesn't have to be the full eight hours right. or whatever it is. Right. Uh, the 15 minutes is huge, and that's that's amazing. You know, mm-hmm. um, you can do a lot with 15 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Self, I guess I'm thinking like self-denial and self-forgetfulness are really helpful, which is mm-hmm. totally countercultural. So if you, if you deny yourself certain things for the, for the, because you can look at a line of available possibilities in terms of your time, your ability, your efforts, and the value that each possesses. We all know that a hangnail is not as serious of an injury as like a broken kneecap or a cancer but to treat them as the same would be catastrophic Mm -hmm. to respond to a hangnail as though it were cancer would be ludicrous. It'd be an offense to anyone who ever is, uh, you know, been struck in with something like that. So we know that there are differences, but in our theory, theoretical thinking about things, we don't like the idea of difference when it melds into the societal realm, because we don't want to think of anybody being as less than or excluded. And so we need a better worldview to process complexity and nuance of that discussion you can't sandwich it and flatten it out um and expect it to work because we're too we're too complicated we're too no we're too nuanced and um there's too many variables at play to 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 simplify it in in a simplistic way and so um we have to be able to differentiate and then make choices 
and um, making choices will be denying yourself something that you like. And the only way to do that is to forget about yourself a little bit. So we always say like, you know, in the age of I'm feeling myself, I mean, there's love songs written about people loving just themselves, but here's the thing I've never met. I've never met someone who's ever said, I love myself so much. I'm ready to now love other people. I've yet to meet that person. I'm perfectly loved to the point of fullness and satisfaction. And now I'm just ready to serve everybody else selflessly. Uh It doesn't work that way. No. So and everybody's like, you just got to love yourself first and love anybody else. You got you to gotta find what you love first before you can ever help anybody else find what they love first. Just keep saying those statements and what do you do? You've drawn the biggest tower around yourself to where you're so fractured from other people that no one can talk to each other. And so what do you do? You go on Facebook and you rant. And then you find ranters that rant with you and you all agree on Facebook. But in your actual lives, you don't know each other. And then we call it a society. And then we wonder why our politics are polarized and why everyone is fighting. Because we have we have for eons forgotten or have chosen volitionally to not actually figure this out and relate to each other. And then you want to be an artist and throw some, you know, some aesthetic on it. You know what I mean? Like if you can't assess the culture and you're not going to be able to be a good storyteller, a good maker, a good culture, and you're not going to have a moral compass or some kind of ethical stance that actually does things. Of course we see people doing that. I'm just saying that if you're not considering this stuff because it makes you uncomfortable, well then man, what kind of artist are you going to be? <laughs> you know, like what kind of yeah. like, like the, you know, the, the Bob Dylan's of the world, like the protest songs, of the sixties against the Vietnam war, you think that they were just sitting comfortably. Like there was like real tensions and real art was coming out of real friction, mm-hmm. real vision of like what needs to change. Um, you can't glamorize that and have a taste of it without actually being in the fight. No, that's true. Definitely. So we've got, I mean, we've got a few like kind of big things is like, uh, I mean, if we wanted to kind of put some little taglines on some stuff from today, I think, you know, one of them would be like, you know, expect some uncomfortableness. Yep. Like expect that that's just going to be there. It's part of growth. It's a part of a lot of different things. Um, Also like look at how you spend your time. And right. then, um, but then also like, what are your priorities? What are your goals? So we've got, uh, goals, we've got time. Um, we've got a number of things that I, I think maybe in, in best case scenario, I think many times we just kind of gloss over them and we just assume that everything's okay in that space, even though the anxiety is probably coming from that assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's some like kind of major points and I think of, of, of my practice through the years or anything else in my life. And if I were to take those three points and those are the considerations going into them to expect uncomfortableness, to actually look at how I spend my time, um, and then to actually assess what my priorities and goals are, I would say in a reasonable way, in a reasonable not, way. not in the, not in the way of sitting at home going, I can be anything I ever want to be ever instantaneously but a real trajectory kind of way where you're like oh yeah i'm gonna have to acquire a certain amount of ability and skills to accord with my desire to ever voice a vision that i have and it's going to take time and hard work yeah factor that into how you're assessing it not the i'm sitting neutral and right now i'm going to express myself and it's going to become awesome yeah you know yeah definitely not that but I think like if I take those three things and I seriously consider them and look back over my life, at least half of my anxiety is gone. Right. 
And not because, again, not because the situation changes, but because now I have a better feel for it, a better grasp on it, a better handle. Um, it feels like something that isn't at somebody else's control, mm-hmm. but that I actually do have some level of volition in. Yeah. That I am an active part of this. Right. And so it's not just waves of time bashing me against the shore, um, but it's actually something that I can be a valid participant in. It's so funny, man. How many people are, um, and this has serious implications for places where water is terrible, but how many people are depressed because they just don't, they're dehydrated? Yeah. And they've, they, they have such an enlarged, overwhelming sense of self-importance that they would never think it's as simple as drinking a glass of water. So they're, they're taking medications. They're, they're asymmetrically out of order because they simply are not responsible enough to, to drink what is available to them. That is part and parcel to what they need. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, definitely. I'm saying that as kind of like a metaphor a little bit, but also true. Like how many people, uh, um, that are artists, uh, romanticize the idea of being depressed. And so they starve themselves, which makes them, you know, like dehydrated and, and they confuse the symptoms of dehydration and sleep deprivation as having some kind of mystical vision that constitutes the fact that they must be a special artist. And so then they eat in in ways that are disordered and their physiological state is being just impacted by, by something as simple as eating some almonds and drinking some water. Yeah. And it's weird. I mean, it's weird. It just, but I'm saying like, you think about how tenuous we are in a way and how temperamental our states are and how influenceable those are by uh, things that would point to like, there's a basic sphere of responsibility, like your hygiene and your health. Um, you know, your eating habits, uh, things, you know, hygiene, I have no problem with, but eating habits have always been a struggle for me and drinking enough water and headaches. And then you take aspirin instead of drinking water. So then you're not really dealing with the problem. You're just masking it, you know, like that would be true of me, you know? And so, um, and then you, you, you're in the state of feeling this deprivation and all you can think is there must be some inordinate reason for it. It can't be as simple as water. Um, that's never my first move. Um, I remember I had like a fourth grader tell me, you know, you get hit. Like I was teaching fourth grade years ago and they were like, you know, you get, um, they're like, Mr. L your headache is probably from, did you drink a glass of water? And I was like, just dying. And I was like, I don't drink a lot of water, especially then. And I was like, there's no way. And then they're like, drink some water. And I did as a fourth grader, like drink some water, Mr. L. And I did. And my headache went away. I was like, <laughs> so embar- I was like, thanks. Uh, awesome person. Very humbled by this this, you know, fourth grader that actually knew better than me, you know, um, and was wiser than me in that moment. And, uh, um, but I wonder, you know, I wonder how these things are all confused. I mean, you can see a web of how these distortions play on each other and image a picture of what a creative person is that actually is the result of symptoms of deprivation as opposed to a clear vision that actually is healthy and attainable and uh, sustainable over your life. Cause I, one thing I love about art and I did when I, for, you know, since I was a kid is this is something I can partake in and be a part of and cont- contribute to the whole of my life. Like I, um, you know, I had the privilege of talking with an artist for our documentary and she's in uh, later, later years, she's in her later seventies where she's retired from teaching in BC, but she's teaching elsewhere in, in, in such a significant thinker and maker and contributor, it's like, uh, she's not even close to done. And what a powerful thought. I, th- I think so many, uh, things we exalt in our culture narrow towards youthfulness to the exclusion of anything. That's why people are constantly 
doing plastic surgery and this kind of thing. It's like, it's like, no, there's this larger life and you want to pack for that journey. Mm, you know, yeah. you want to, you want to be prepared for the whole, the whole, the whole journey, not just a, a small short section of it. Cause it goes quickly, you know, say, say your conclusion again. What's, what are, what are we have? Um, so it's a, uh, you know, priorities and goals in a very yeah. sober way and being yeah. like realistic about them. Right. Um, time management. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also expect uncomfortability, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be there. It's just, yeah. You're going to be uncomfortable at different times right. and that's fine. It's okay. It's not so, a sign so that, that you're in the wrong yeah, spot. Yeah, that in basic, so like, that's what my point is like basic nourishment, um, just responsibly caring for yourself Yeah, as a, pe- a person, which it requires relationships and food and, you know, like those are not things that should be thrown out in order to obtain to success. Right. If you have to, then, then, then either someone's lying to you or um, you're not up for the job. Do not let go of your relationships on some level um, in a healthy way in the, just, just being a healthy person as much as you can, like steward those things well, because uh, it'll give you a stronger baseline. And it's just, it's a part of the whole picture. Like who wants to really hang out with um, the artist who's in is kind of like the extreme genius type that we've stereotyped for so long in our culture that maybe exists where you go in there and they make great things, but they are the worst person ever. You know, they're just a train wreck and they're abusing people. And, and then we're conflicted because we're like, but man, they made great stuff. Yeah. But at what cost? Mm -hmm. And now that you know that their life looks like this, you can't, um, even partake in the work they made Bill Cosby. Right. Yeah. Like you, you can never watch the Cosby. I love the Cosby show. You can't watch the Cosby show anymore because Bill Cosby was a nutball. You see what I'm saying? Like, um, we know that that kind of asymmetric ultimately just falls short. Uh, anybody who is great at something that we've marveled at, once you peer into their life and you see that it was too devoted in, in a way, and there's this, there's kind of like dark underpinning, um, taints that work anyways. So why strive for it that way? Why not, why not envision another way forward? And I think what an amazing opportunity that's still set before us as designers and artists and musicians and storytellers and painters and sculptors and, you know, new technology, new media, sound, uh, you know, who knows? So, um, anyhow, I'm sure folks will have a lot of thoughts about this. And so if you, you know, you do have questions or thoughts, you can, you can definitely, uh, email us at info at shockoartspace.com, uh, info at shockoartspace.com. And, and we'd love to hear from you. And uh, just put in there a tagline uh, as a, with reference to Shaco Art Speak, and we will be sure to um, get to those. And uh, definitely, yeah, be looking. We got some um, exciting things coming up in in conversations with uh, leading into the fall, and an, a big art fair that's happening. And um, we'll we'll be hearing from some participants and different things like that. And uh, we have a, f- a couple of interesting artists coming in <clears throat> that will be talking about projects they're doing that live outside the box of what we expect from an artist. And I think you're going to find that, you know, very interesting. Um, you know, uh, we have a, a documentary coming, uh, that will be released in October. I can't wait to share more with you about that and, um, uh, just some other fantastic projects. And so, um, yeah, we just look forward to hearing from you. We thank you for your support. We still are fundraising. So just if you're, you're feeling inclined, our Patreon is there. Uh, check us out. Um, we, we need a lot of Patreon support. If you're interested in hearing 
some of our other project ideas that correspond or relate to our, our podcast, uh, go, go to our Patreon account, check it out. You can see what your contributions will uh, unlock as far as uh, our next steps in terms of this, this podcast. And so with that, we thank you. Yeah, thank you all so much. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.